Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I've got three guests this week who are going to talk about a range of issues. First, I have Professor Leah Littman. Leah Littman is Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. She's a former clerk for Justice Anthony Kennedy. She's going to talk about something that we have broached on this podcast but have not delved into head-on. We've talked a lot about Norman Wang and whether or not the retribution he faced was commensurate with his crime of writing that paper. And I felt, still feel, that there are some issues with the process of how he was treated. But along the way, we've been detoured from the bigger question, which is, what is the legal question of affirmative action? What is the law currently? Which direction is the law going? And why the direction the law is going may be flawed. Professor Littman is a thoughtful constitutional law scholar who's going to take us through this argument. This is a very important discussion. It's important not to forget how a debate could have occurred on this issue instead of being derailed by the process of how this person was treated in response to his views. And listen to Professor Littman describe how law professors with views very similar to Mr. Norman Wang are treated in the legal profession. You won't want to miss that discussion. Next. We can't forget this is still an oncology podcast, and God willing, we will be back to oncology in the future. And along that theme, we have Patrick DiMartino. Pat DiMartino is a pediatric hemong fellow at OHSU. Came to me a couple years ago looking for a project. I gave him an idea. It was just a scrap of an idea. I gave him that idea. He ran with it. He made the idea much more complicated and rich. To my dismay, because I don't like when people complicate things, but it turned out to be really wonderful, really spectacular. He submitted it to JAM Internal Medicine. It was accepted. It's been published. It came out this week on Monday. This is a paper on the potential cost implications of all drugs in 2018. What do I mean by that? Prior to 2018, we know the U.S. is spending $50 billion on all cancer drugs as of 2017. How much would it cost to pay for just the drugs that received marketing authorization in 2018? That was the task I gave Pat DiMartino. He took it and ran with it, figured out a whole bunch of other stuff, and he has found a very provocative number that can only mean one of three things. You won't want to miss this discussion. And last, I'm joined in the studio by John Mandrola. John Mandrola was once riding high, a Twitter star, someone whose blogs drew massive readership. But in recent weeks, he's been ratioed three times. He's stepped on it. He's made errors in the social media world. Was it his fault? What did he say wrong? You won't want to miss this discussion with John Mandrola about the intersection of medicine, politics, and the line between advocacy and naked politicking. And you won't want to miss this discussion. And you won't want to miss the way in which he conceptualizes this issue. So, on this positive note, you've got three big interviews. We're going to go into the constitutional law world, where I don't know anything at all. We're going to come back to something I know a lot about, which is cancer drug pricing. And then we're going to go and talk about something that, well, it's easy to know a lot about because there's no empirical data to guide us. So you won't want to miss this week's episode. Stay tuned. And 
On a future episode, I'm back, and I've got so much in store for you. I got Vlad Kogan, he's back to talk schools. I got Scott Stern and Adam Sifu, and they got a new podcast coming out on clinical decision making. You're not going to want to miss that. I've got Kareen Tawaji, and she's back to talk about Javelin 100. And I have Carrie Cruz Bueno, an economist who's going to take us through the economic data on whether online schools are comparable to in-person education. We've got so much good plenary session in store for you. You won't want to miss this podcast in the weeks to come. Stay tuned. You know, I have been meaning to do a monologue on some studies that have come out recently because we had the Beat AML study, and I'm going to get to it eventually. I'm going to be able to take you through some of what Beat AML showed. But before we get to Beat AML, I just want to prime you with the idea that if you do an uncontrolled study of molecular profiling in patients with AML, and you want to compare it to any other cohort, the key is how are you selecting your patients? If you are excluding patients who roll in with AML with white counts of a buck 50, who are hospitalized in the unit with respiratory distress and who have to get treated right away, if you're not going to enroll those patients, you probably ought not compare your survival results to those patients. And this is going to be the crux of the issue with precision oncology. Precision oncology is always going to run these uncontrolled studies that compare people who are selected in one way that selects for, frankly, indolent biology, good substrate, good socioeconomics, and they're going to try to compare themselves to people with rip-roaring cancers who have to be treated right away, who are too sick to be consented, who are too sick to participate in these studies. And these kinds of comparisons are beyond useless. They serve no purpose. And so if you're going to do a study like this, and you're going to take hundreds and hundreds of people, and you're going to put them through some non-randomized ordeal to pair them with drugs... You gotta randomize. You gotta randomize. Randomized, it's, it's only a four letter word on Twitter. It's not a problematic word in the real world. And we're gonna come back to BDA now. We're gonna dive in and we're gonna talk about it. But essentially, essentially, you know where I'm going with this. Uncontrolled studies in cancer medicine are the silliest thing on earth. They almost never tell us anything of value. In one case, we had a parachute. It told us something of value. That was 20 years ago, and we haven't had any parachutes since then. And you know what? Parachutes don't grow on trees. And that's why you need randomization. You don't need uncontrolled studies. One more plug. I've got a paper out in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology. It's with Rahul Banerjee, and it's called Pragmatic Trials with Pre-Specified Subgroups, What Oncologists Can Learn from COVID-19. And it makes a very simple argument. Right now, we have randomized trials, that test idealized efficacy in populations that are not representative of cancer patients. We also have expanded access protocols that occasionally occur to give access to drugs to people who don't fit the stringent inclusion criteria, explicit and implicit, of randomized control trials. Recovery comes along and they show a path forward. In a single large pragmatic study, they randomize 15% of the population. They're able to test whether or not drugs work in the idealized cohorts and the cohorts that you think they might not work, all with pre-specified subgroups and enough power to power for interaction. And this is a lesson we think can apply in cancer medicine. We can run large pragmatic trials of novel drugs with enough power to tell that they work in young, healthy people who would typically be trial eligible, but perhaps that they might not work in older, frailer Americans that resemble the real world. You don't need expanded access. You don't need right to try a single, simple, pragmatic, randomized trial. You won't want to miss this paper. Check it out. It's a Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology. 
One other plug. I got a paper out in Annals of Oncology with Ryan Waters. It's called How Often Do Highly Promising Cancer Biology Discoveries Translate into Effective Treatments? Ryan went back into the past and he found claims of highly promising breakthroughs, treatments that were just around the corner in the basic science literature. And he followed them out with about 12 years of follow-up in the literature. And he asked, how many of these cancer drugs that were prophesied as miracles that were definitely going to work, how many materialized with 12 years of follow-up? And the answer is, you're going to have to read the paper because it's going to... You're going to have to read the paper. It's quite sobering. Ryan Waters, fantastic student at OHSU, has done a fantastic paper. It's out now in the Annals of Oncology. And one more plug, paper, Kate Rosen. Kate Rosen is a star OHSU third-year student. And she came to us, myself and Emerson Chen, who is friend of the show. You know Emerson Chen. He's done a number of really interesting papers on, on the FDA approval process. And we decided to do a project where we would take advantage of one scrap of data sharing, one tiny morsel of data sharing, a little bit, a little in the parentheses data point that came out in the Lancet journals, which was the number of patients censored at every time interval in Kaplan-Meier plots that appeared in the Lancet journals. This was a change that occurred in 2018. And this little change permitted an analysis of censored patients. Now, of course, censoring is something that happens in Kaplan-Meier plots. And the fundamental assumption of the Kaplan-Meier method is that censored patients are no healthier, wealthier, or wiser than those who are not censored. In other words, that the censored patients are uninformatively censored. They are equally likely to experience the event of interest had they been included. But of course, they're not included because they're censored. That's the assumption. But that assumption might not be right. It might be wrong. If you give a drug that has real toxicity, it might preferentially weed out people who cannot bear that toxicity. They might be older, might be frailer, might be more likely to progress. That would be informative censoring. That would be really bad. And it would be really bad if there was differential censoring, more censoring in one arm than the other arm. Well, because the Lancet has given us this data, we're able to calculate the percent of people censored in each arm every time point, all the trials, last few years. You won't want to miss this paper. There are a number of remarkable findings. There is a trend that happens in censoring. It moves from one arm to the other arm over time. There's some reasons why that happens. And there are outliers. That's the big thing. There are some trials that stick out like a sore thumb. I'm looking at you, Quizartanib. And when you stick out like a sore thumb, there is something there that needs to be looked at. And it needs to be looked at very closely if you catch my drift. And that's why that drug went to ODAC. And that's why the ODAC concluded the way they concluded. And that's why I don't see too much of that drug these days. So... You want to take a look at this paper if you're someone interested in the Kaplan-Meier method and survival analysis in the way in which censoring is happening all around us and you don't see. And if you are somebody out there who's listening to this podcast and you think, well, progression-free survival, it actually does matter. It is clinically meaningful. It is useful. If you like PFS and you think it matters and you don't know what censoring is and how it works and why it works a certain way in PFS that it don't work that way in OS, if you don't understand that, you really don't understand PFS a la trial PFS. You may understand what it means when your patient progresses, but you don't understand the construct that's being tested in the trial. So you're going to want to take a look at this paper. All right. Those are some papers that just came out in the last week or two. Unlike a lot of people, when COVID hit, we didn't completely retool our agenda to do empty, meaningless COVID publications that weren't going to tell us anything of value. We stuck with what we're good at and we plowed ahead. And, and there are no regrets there because, you know, Frankly, 95% of COVID papers the world could be without. The vaccine, it's coming. That's going to be interesting. That's something that we needed. Calculations of IFR, you know, got too hot, too hot to trot. RCTs, cluster RCTs, 
masks got too hot to trot. Those are the kinds of things, randomized trials of therapeutics. That's what we really needed. A lot of this stuff that I read, we don't need that. Ah, one last plug. One last plug in the week's news is long COVID. Long COVID. Long COVID, which are people who've previously had COVID, although some long COVID sufferers are actually PCR negative and antibody negative, yet they present with the symptoms of long COVID, which are a number of diverse constellation of symptoms that are attributed to having had COVID. It's a very thorny space, very thorny space, and I have to tread lightly. And I thought about every word, I, I thought about every last word, and I wrote an op-ed called More Science, Less Speculation on COVID Long Haulers. And what the article talks about is two things. One, people who are suffering are suffering. We need to figure out what helps them suffer less, what makes them feel better. That, that's true. Two, what is the cause of why they're suffering? If something happens to you bad after having COVID, was it due to having COVID? If something happens bad to you after having a COVID vaccine, was it due to the vaccine? It's a very difficult issue. Methodologically, it's not so clear. And we have an added problem, which is that Twitter is amplifying the voices of quote unquote experts who do not appear to understand what it would mean to inject science into the space of long COVID. And thus they are fueling a lot of powerful narratives around long COVID that may not have the empirical data behind it, and they do not seem to appreciate what they're doing. Of course, they're playing to the crowd. Once you get into the 100K club, you got to play to the crowd. And what playing to the crowd means is you got to talk extremely politically, and you got to talk about things like this. It can be problematic if you forget your roots, and the roots are science. So I encourage people to read my article that's out in MedPage today called More Science, Less Speculation on COVID Long Haulers. We need more trials, more clarity and not just for treatment. So you won't want to miss that. On that positive note, we're going to talk to Professor Littman on Affirmative Action. Stay tuned. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Professor Leah Littman. Professor Littman is a legal scholar. She's a legal expert, and she is one of the four hosts of Strict Scrutiny, which is my favorite legal podcast. Although I, I don't know that much about the law, but I'm learning. I learn a lot from the podcast, and it's a terrific podcast about constitutional law that I think you should you should check out. Um, Professor Littman, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'm, I guess I should give listeners a little bit of background about you. Um, I know you are an assistant professor at Michigan, and uh, you completed law school there. Um, and afterwards, you clerked for um, some important people, including uh, Justice Kennedy on, on the Supreme Court. Um, and, and, and you and Dan Epps, did you overlap, uh, as clerking for, for Justice Kennedy? Uh, no, we didn't overlap, although he was part of the class of clerks who interviewed me when I was interviewing ah, I for the position. I see. So I guess, um, for people in medicine, I guess, um, clerking for a Supreme Court justice is a, is a real honor and it, it gives you sort of a very unique perspective, I think, in, in how the court works and how the court thinks. Is that fair to say? Yeah. A lot of the rules that the court operates by aren't super public. And so you don't get the opportunity to understand things like how opinions are assigned or different conventions that the court has, um, unless you work there or practice there pretty regularly. I see. And um, yeah, I, I've learned a lot about sort of the court lore through through the two podcasts you've played a role in, um, getting sort of a behind the scenes look. And and I'd always been sort of an amateur person interested in this, reading the, the Jeffrey Tubin books, although I shouldn't say his name these days. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and then, of course, um, learning a lot more from the podcast, which has really been sort of a, a rare opportunity for people not in the field to learn about it. 
Um, but I guess I'll just jump into what I wanted to talk to you about today because I know our time is limited. But I was really grateful for your time because I'm wondering if you might explain an issue that has arisen in medicine recently. We've talked about it a lot in part because of this one paper written by this one professor. Um, but I think people have missed the bigger picture, which is the issue itself. And that's the issue of affirmative action um, in the admissions processes of universities. And my understanding is that there is an ongoing legal question. And actually, today we got some information from the, the Harvard uh, suit. Um, and the legal question has to do um, with the Civil Rights Amendment, specifically um, Section 7, Maybe I'm saying that wrong, but the, um, uh, which which forbids uh, employment-based discrimination on the basis of race, and the dispute, the legal dispute, is what does that mean? Um, it was that meant to mean that we cannot. Um, preferentially consider people from underrepresented minorities or not? That's the question. I wonder if you might explain what is the legal question at stake here when people say the Supreme Court ruled on affirmative action? What are they What are they arguing about? Absolutely. So before I get into that, I think it's helpful just to get on the table that there are actually many different kinds of affirmative action. We're going to be talking primarily, it sounds like, affirmative action in the context of education. But of course, there's affirmative action in employment as well as other fields as well. Um, but even within education, there are different kinds of affirmative action. So sometimes an affirmative action program might look like a school says, we're going to reserve 5, 10, 15 spaces in our class of 100 for so-called underrepresented minorities. Other times, an affirmative action program might look like, well, we're not going to reserve certain spots in the class for underrepresented minorities. Instead, we are going to consider race together with other aspects of an application that might contribute to diversity mm -hmm. in an educational class. Another variation on this might be, well, we're going to assign a number of points to an individual based on any number of characteristics that they have, five points if they're above our 75% LSAT or MCAT score, five points if their GPA is above a medium, and perhaps five points if they're an underrepresented minority. So. What all of those programs have in common is they involve some consideration of race when determining whether to admit an applicant to an educational institution. And the question is, does that consideration of race, which is not done to disadvantage a racial minority and isn't done in order to subordinate one racial group to another, is that nonetheless impermissible under the many different laws and the constitutional provision that governs the use of race? So under the Constitution, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution prohibits states from denying persons equal protection of law. And the court has held that when states differentiate between people on the basis of race, that triggers the closest, most intrusive kind of judicial review mm. in courts. So most considerations of race um, are subject to what we in the law call strict scrutiny. Hence your podcast name. <laughs> right, exactly, yes, yeah. our podcast name. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of other statutes that govern 
more specific mm-hmm. kinds of consideration of race. So there's Title VII, which, as you noted, governs employment. There's Title VI, which governs education. I see. And there's just a bunch of different um, statutes see. that govern uh, when race is permissible, under what context. But the general question in all of these cases is, when does consideration of race amount to prohibited discrimination I see. on the basis of race? I see. So um, just to be clear, uh, the legal dispute is not, should universities do this? It's, are they prohibited from doing this? Um, and and that's a key difference, because I think some people understand this to be like the Supreme Court is telling universities what to do. Universities choose people in all sorts of multifaceted ways. Just the other day, I was, you know, people are like the, the particular model organism somebody worked on in their laboratory. You know, that's something that they, they like. And so they might give that person a preference in their selection. Um, it's not about what we're telling universities to do. It's what universities are prohibited by law from, from thinking about um, at one factor among many. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. It's whether the Constitution permits them to consider issues of race or statutes permits them to consider issues of race, not whether it requires them I to see. do so. And is there a link here between um, the receipt of federal dollars and this? So if a university is completely uh, cut off from all federal money, can they do whatever they want or, or are they still governed by these these rules? Is there is the money somehow play a role? There's a bunch of different federal statutes, and one of those federal statutes conditions the receipt of federal funds on the condition that an educational institution not discriminate on the basis of race. But then there are other statutes that just flat out prohibit discrimination on the basis of race. So there's a bunch of different overlapping statutes. Some involve receipt of money and some don't. I see. Um, one thing that I've always been puzzled with as an external observer is that, you know, I, I don't know a lot of history, but I, I would understand that the Civil Rights Amendment to the Constitution, um, that was intended to correct longstanding discrimination against some ethnic and racial groups, particularly Black Americans, particularly the, the long and stained legacy of slavery in this country. Um, that is it, is, it, is it considered ironic that to some degree that legislation is, is now being brought forward as a reason um, not to give um, uh, sort of perhaps, um, I don't want to say, uh, not to give consideration to the unique experience of these individuals and factor that into selection processes? Um, is, 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 that, is that something that, that, that's discussed? Yes, that's definitely one part of the debate about whether affirmative action amounts to discrimination on the basis of race. Because as you were suggesting, one key purpose behind the Reconstruction Amendments, of which the 14th Amendment is just one, was to free, you know, former slaves and racial minorities from the conditions that subordinated them. And so there's something odd about turning around and saying, well, also, those amendments prohibit measures that are in part designed to help to such ameliorate groups. those wrongdoings, right? So then, exactly. Then why? I mean, when I look at the way the court has split on this issue, it looks like those people who they call themselves originalists, and and I, I can only assume whatever that that me how they interpret, they go in the mind of uh, you know somebody who lived in in seventeen hundred and think about how they thought of it. But um, why do they not see it this way? That this the purpose of it was not to be used in this other way. Ergo, we should not uh, enforce the law in this way. Why, how have they spun it the other direction? 
So I think what they say is kind of twofold. First, they read the purpose of the amendments to prohibit considerations of race. And they say what the amendments were designed to do was to dismantle separate but equal regimes that treated people differently on the basis of race. So they just define the purpose at a different level of generality instead of saying its purpose was to help the conditions of racial minorities and ameliorate the conditions that subordinated them, they say, no, the purpose was to eliminate considerations of race. Um, and so that's one way that they kind of get around, you know, the opposing argument about the purpose of the amendment. I see. I see. That's how they, that's how they play that. Okay. So my understanding from following the court um, which had been leaning one direction, probably right of center, and now is leaning heavily right, is that the court is moving against, um, maybe not today, maybe, you know, maybe not in the near future, but sometime perhaps in our, in the near future, the court may take actions that make it much more difficult for places like Harvard and Yale and University of Michigan and Texas, um, to consider race among other factors. Um, I wonder if you might articulate where the court has fallen. My understanding is they, they do not permit quotas, but they do permit it as a factor currently. Um, so where have they fallen currently? Where might they go? And then the next part of the question, which we can come to in a little bit, is why might you or somebody who thinks the way you think argue that this is the wrong direction to be taking the law? So the current state of play, at least with respect to affirmative action programs in higher education, is something like the following. Um, Institutions of higher education can pursue consideration of race for the purpose of ensuring a diverse educational experience. They cannot, however, justify consideration of race on the basis of remedying or responding to previous societal discrimination. The only Hmm. circumstance in which they can use race in order to respond to previous discrimination is if they themselves had formal discrimination on the basis of race. The applicant themselves, the applicant, I see, okay. Uh, uh, No, the institution. Oh, the institution. Um, Yeah, so the only way that the institution can say, we will consider race when deciding whether to admit an applicant is if we as an institution previously discriminated against racial minorities and therefore we are adopting this admissions policy in order to rectify our previous discrimination. But isn't that true for every university? Because at one point in time, they didn't admit people of color. Well, the second requirement okay, okay. that the court has imposed okay. on institutions of higher education is what we call in law narrow tailoring. There mm. has to be a close fit between the goal that a university is pursuing and the means it has adapted to pursue that goal. So that's why, for example, the court has said quotas are never permissible. I see. Because a university can never prove that they need to set aside 10, 5, 12, or 25 spots in the class in order to remedy past discrimination or ensure adequate diversity in the class. And because they're unable to prove that, they can't have a quota. 
But what the court has allowed for is universities may consider race together with other aspects of diversity in order to achieve a diverse educational environment. The court has said that's something that universities can pursue and they can pursue that by consideration of race, as long as they first think about whether there are ways to achieve a diverse educational body that don't involve consideration of race. Mm. So that's where the state of the law is right now. I see. Are you worried that it's going to move in a more restrictive way on universities to further curtail the ability of universities to to use race among other factors, just based on the Coney Barrett uh, confirmation and, and the way the court has, has moved? It is absolutely going to be moving in a more restrictive direction. And the only question it was is when it was going to be moving in a more restrictive direction when Justice Kavanaugh was appointed to replace Justice Kennedy. And it's certainly going to be moving in a more restrictive direction now that Justice Barrett has replaced Justice Ginsburg. Um, You mentioned earlier that the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, which is the court that sits just below Mm -hmm. the U.S. Supreme Court in the federal court system, they upheld Harvard's affirmative action admissions policy And their conclusion was that under governing Supreme Court precedent, as it stands today, this policy is clearly legal. I see. But the U.S. Supreme Court isn't as bound by Mm -hmm. governing Supreme Court precedent since they can revisit their cases. And it's very possible that the challengers will ask the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case and change the law on when universities are allowed to consider race and admissions. I see. And and it and I then I think they um they talk a big game about adhering to precedent, but when push comes to shove, they're more than happy to throw precedent right under the bus. What's been working well for decades doesn't need to stay. Um I wonder if you might talk a little bit about I mean, let's say you were a justice on the Supreme Court. Um my my understanding from having followed you a little bit, although I've, I've never heard you sort of explicitly state, is that, um, you know, how, how do you think this law ought to be interpreted? How would you advise um, your fellow court members and how would you vote? Um, I guess for me, it, it seems a strange sort of um, compromise we're in that we can't actually explicitly uh, say we want this many seats, but we can in a sense, achieve that purpose. Um, and, and just thinking about the broader purpose and intent of these of these laws and what they were meant to do and, and now what they're being used to do. Um, how, how do you come in on this? What do you think is sort of the better way to interpret this law? Yeah, so I think about it um, along three different axes. One is, I think that the evidence about what the 14th Amendment and Reconstruction Amendments meant when they were enacted is quite compelling. Um, it's not just that I think the people that ratified the 14th Amendment had in mind the purpose of dismantling racial hierarchies and racial subordination. What's equally persuasive to me is the fact that that Congress that ratified they adopted the 14th Amendment, then passed a bunch of statutes that specifically awarded benefits not only to former slaves, but also to persons they described in the law Hmm. as black or colored. Mm -hmm. So they did not think that the 14th Amendment prohibited race-conscious laws that were designed to improve the material conditions for racial minorities. And I think that that is very compelling evidence about how we should interpret 
um, the Constitution and the statutes passed in order to codify, you know, that prohibition against discrimination. Mm -hmm. So the evidence about how the Reconstruction Congress interpreted those amendments suggests that universities have the option about considering race if they are doing so in a way that is designed to foster inclusivity and equity rather than subordination. Mm -hmm. I see. And and that, that to me is I just very sensible on the face of it. And maybe I'm the wrong person to talk to because I, I see things your way. Um, but I guess one of the things I've heard, because uh, I listened to some of these um, right-leaning legal thinkers, and one of the things I hear them say is that you don't need race. In fact, if we ban you from considering race, you can achieve the same outcome by using income. And I guess I've always wondered, like, I, I was like, well, one, I was like, is that even empirically the case? But two, is it, uh, I mean, is that really what we, like, th what the law was intended to mean to, like, c tie their hands in this way and not use race and then find some surrogate for race that goes hand in hand with race, which is sort of proof that race is still a powerful determinant of socioeconomic factors and that race still has this huge burden, you know, being born the wrong color is still, you know, not as good as being born a different color in this country. Um, is that really what the law is about? What are your thoughts on this idea, using money instead of race? Yeah, so I guess I would say two things about that. One is, and I think this is something that Justice Souter mentioned in his dissent in Gratz, which is one of the affirmative action cases, is that there's actually some value to asking institutions of higher education and other governing institutions to be transparent about mm -hmm. what it is they're trying to do. Why force them to bury their rationale, mm -hmm. as you were saying, you know, pretend it's somehow about income and socioeconomic status and what they're really trying to do is in order to rectify previous racial discrimination. So I think that there's value in allowing transparency and honesty in what governing institutions are trying to do. Um, but second and more importantly is I think that overlooks something that affirmative action programs and race conscious remedies are trying to do, which is acknowledge the continuing relevance of race in the United States. When we look at, for example, statistics about the coronavirus, we see race is still relevant yeah. in health outcomes, access to health care and health insurance. It's still relevant in housing. It's still relevant in employment. It's relevant in how much you make. It's relevant in how you're treated by the police. And so what those programs can't achieve is rectifying for problems that are at least correlated with race. And they also can't include people specifically because their experiences in their lives have been shaped by racialization mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, their race and how people perceive their race. And so I think that, you know, efforts to treat um, socioeconomic status and income um, as a way of achieving diversity is important for one kind of diversity, I diversity see. and socioeconomic right. status, but doesn't capture the other kind of diversity and the other kinds of harms that affirmative action programs are designed to remedy and include. I see. That's that's uh, um, very nicely stated. I'm wondering if you might address the question around Asian Americans and some of the litigation around Asian Americans, um, where I think my lay summary of it would be that Asians feel like that they are um, having opportunities deprived despite the fact they're coming in with very high test scores and often exceeding um, other groups. What are your thoughts on, on this particular um, part of the, of the affirmative action question? 
So that's a question that is at issue in the Harvard litigation, um, and it may be in some other litigation as well. But I actually think that is separate from mm. questions about the permissibility of affirmative action. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the reason why I say that is as follows. If any of these institutions are purposefully capping the number of applicants they admit because they are Asian American, that is illegal, mm. whether or not they have an affirmative action program. Because even under any of the legal theories that say you can use consideration of race in order to remedy prior discrimination or to foster inclusivity and equity, none of those theories say you can exclude members of certain racial groups because you don't want them there. I see. Like, that is illegal discrimination, I see. even under theories that say institutions of higher education can consider race um, when they admit applicants. I see. Um, so that's, a, that's a very important distinction that I had not fully appreciated. I'm wondering if you might comment a little bit about the disconnect between, I think one of the reasons people have a hard time processing this is that uh, people approach this question with the mindset of how ought universities admit students. But the legal question is all about how ought they be prohibited um, from, you know, I wonder if you might get into that a little bit, that is it possible that there are two um, progressive, thoughtful institutions that still, that both use some affirmative action policy slightly differently? And and is it the role of the law to, to decide from on high how we ought to select people for something that, to be frank, is really, at the end of the day, and a very subjective thing we do is picking people for medical school. I don't know about law school, but I would imagine to, a same, to the same degree. How do you think about this distinction about are people free to select in ways um, that, you know, yeah, you get my picture, yeah. Yeah, so I think about it in terms of not only academic freedom, okay. as you were suggesting, you know, the ability of institutions to think about how exactly they want to run their business and what would make for the best academic environment in which to learn and to teach, um, but also in terms of what is the proper role for courts in a democratic society. And I don't believe courts should be ruling out of bounds or putting off the table um, different approaches that governing institutions can pursue in good faith, um, particularly those that are aimed at inclusivity. And, you know, when the court says universities can adopt affirmative action policies, universities have not adopted all of the same affirmative action policies. You know, yes. some schools have a program like Harvard that is just a holistic application across the board that considers all factors at every stage of the inquiry. Other schools like the University of Texas have a combination of a you know top 10% plan where they admit students who graduate in the top 10% of their classes at Texas schools, and then also admit some number of students based on a holistic assessment of their files. Other universities will say, you know, we want some students who are going to be really focused on music, or we want to admit a class of students that is going to pursue different interests. And there's no right way, one right way to do admissions. And so what the court's affirmative action decisions have done is to say, well, when you're deciding what kind of admissions policy you want, you can consider race in some ways. And what the court seems poised to do 
is to say, no, you can never consider race, at least explicitly or out in the open. I see. That is a very, a, a very interesting point. Um, it, does the court permit um, a university to consider race in a way that perpetuates majorities? So are they allowed to give a point to a white person instead of a black person? Or does it have to be an underrepresented component to it or historical injustice component? How does the court deal with that question? So I think under what the current law is, which is universities can consider race in order to ensure a diverse educational environment. No university could walk into court and say, well, we're giving a point to white applicants because white applicants don't exactly make up a minority share of university pools. And so there wouldn't be a justifiable basis for saying in order to achieve educational diversity, we need to admit more white applicants. I see. Um, just given the representational pool of most universities. Right I now. see. But but um, in a theoretical world where 90 percent of schools are people of color um, and uh, and 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 then and, and 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 if then a university could potentially um, uh, have such a program, uh, it, it just has to do with the proportionality at, currently at the moment. Is that right? So under the court's existing precedent, which is universities can consider race in order to achieve a diverse educational environment, that could well be the case. Um, When affirmative action was initially litigated, however, the original rationale and justification was we should be able to have affirmative action programs in order to remedy past societal discrimination Mm -hmm. and past histories of discrimination. Mm -hmm. So if that's the rationale that becomes accepted for why universities can have affirmative action, then that wouldn't justify giving a plus factor to white applicants. Even if they were the minority group in the school. I see. Right. Um, That makes a lot of sense. Um, What about the question of, I mean, one thing I come to is this, um, this sort of, I don't know, it's, it's this concept that people toss out, which is the best person, the best applicant and 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 by, when people say best applicant, they're like, we just need the best applicant. It doesn't matter what you know. That that's the thinking. And when I hear that, I ask, you know, like, what do you mean best? Best by what? And I can speak more to my field, which is medicine. So I was like, well, we, we have a standardized test, the MCAT. Um, it has nothing to do with being a doctor. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it has to do with, but it is a standardized test, like every other standardized test. There may even be a racial bias that's been hard baked into this test, based on the way in which it asks questions and the types of people and the types of upbringing that lead one to read and and answer those questions the way the test maker has intended. Um, and it's never been validated against an external thing, like people who score well in this test are great doctors ten years down the road. It's validated against other tests. So people who promote this kind of best applicant narrative. They, they say, well, the MCAT predicts graduation. And I say, well, one of the things to graduate is passing a standardized test that is almost identical to that standardized test, right? So, I mean, you it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Of course, it's going to predict who graduates if you make the hurdle to graduate the exact same thing as, as the test itself. Um, similarly, college grades. Um, you know, I, I guess I, I'm not necessarily convinced that people who score really well on those metrics do well. Um, similarly, you know, we use other things like how many papers have you published, how many times have you worked in a lab, and all these things. And these can... I, you know, they, they speak a lot to the ability for um, the the applicant's parents to get them connected to the right uh, people. And, and I know that because now I'm a faculty and, you know, people who are well-connected seek me out uh, disproportionately to people who um, are not as well-connected. So I guess, I guess one of the things I wonder if this enters into the thinking here is that the way we consider this idea that there is a scale of merit 
that an absolute meritorious scale, that is a fundamentally untrue, unsound concept, in, in my opinion. How do you think about that? Yeah, so I think of it, I guess I would rephrase it in terms of merit is a pretty capacious term, mm. whether you're thinking about college applications or the field I know, you know, law, that includes a bunch of skills that are not reflected in or are very imperfectly reflected in grade point averages and standardized test scores. You know, one thing that lawyers need to do is be able to talk with people and make their clients comfortable and develop human relationships in mm -hmm. order to build clients. I don't think that's something that a standardized test score is going to measure. Mm -hmm. And so if the question is, well, we want to admit people who are going to be good lawyers. Well, it's in some ways more important to think about what's their emotional intelligence or what's their personal rapport and mm -hmm. ability to build connections and have empathy, you know, to other people. What's that like? Um, and similarly, you know, for college applications, you know, markets change and, you know, some people go on to do amazing things because they were super creative right. or, you know, they saw something changing and they just seized on that. And right. I don't really think that's something that is going to be measured by a standardized test score either. And so given that grades and standardized test scores are going to measure something that is surely relevant to one aspect of college or one aspect of law school, yes, we should consider them, but that can't be the whole story. And so to say that you are taking away spots that people are entitled to because of their grades and because of their standardized test scores ignores, I think, a very important reality that what we're trying to select for are people who are going to be, you know, productive citizens and help society or be good lawyers and those aren't skills that are going to be super well reflected or perfectly well reflected in GPAs and standardized test scores. I see. Um, one question that somebody asked me, and I guess I don't know the answer, but I, I'm going to ask you, and I, I don't know if it's a tricky question, which is um, um, among the pool of people who self-identify as Black or African-Americans, there may be people with diverse um, historical and life experience. There may be descendants of slaves. There may also be a group of children of immigrants um, my own parents are immigrants from India, but there could be, you know, I, a lot of friends who are children of Nigerian immigrants or Ghana immigrants. Um, and, and what, and I also have a friend who's a, just a, a African American descendant of slave. And he has always, um, asked me and, and I've wondered about the way affirmative action considers, um, black, which is a very broad category. Um, how does it, um, how is it permitted to think about these sorts of historical, um, path distinctions and the, the rich and different experiences different people bring from both paths? Um, how does affirmative action think about or can think about that, uh, under the law and, and just broadly? Yeah. So one objection that people sometimes have to affirmative action is that it sorts people into government imposed racial categories mm -hmm. when those categories are imperfect and don't capture diversity. I think a rejoinder to that is nothing prevents a school from asking for additional information. So for example, you identify as black. Um, well, tell us a little bit more. You know, are you a first generation? Um, student, you know, are you descended from slaves? Are you from the deep south? Are you from elsewhere? And so nothing is preventing schools from trying to collect more information unless you say, well, schools can't ask about race or I consider see. race at all. I see. Interesting. Now, I, I'm wondering if you might tackle this question, which is that 
It is often the political right and Republicans who um, simultaneously champion individual and, and institutional freedoms to experiment, to try different things and to see what succeeds and what fails. And yet, in, and, and, and they oppose judicial uh, tyranny, judicial rules governing us all. And yet in this instance, it seems the roles have reversed because it is they who seek the judiciary to tell Harvard, which really, I mean, how did Harvard decide they wanted to do this? They had to win hearts and minds for decades. I mean, they had to win the faculty's hearts and minds and say, you know, we want to prioritize a diverse class and and get people to believe that that's a virtue that is the hard thorny problem of political processes and now the 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 political right wants the judiciary to come in and enforce isn't that sort of the inversion of of the way in which they portray themselves as sort of permitting freedom and, and that sort of thing I think that's why claims of judicial activism or judicial tyranny are oftentimes too general to be helpful mm. um, in answering whether any particular dispute should be decided a particular way, because the reality is both conservatives and both liberals think that sometimes courts should rule certain courses of action off the table. Uh -huh. And the entire dispute boils down to, well, what kinds of things should courts say are impermissible? And here, you know, Republican appointed justices think it's okay for courts to say, you know, institutions can never consider race, whereas progressives say, no, institutions should have the ability to decide for themselves whether to consider issues of race, and they can vary from one another in that respect. And it's not court's role to tell educational institutions how they should be doing their jobs. I see. And, and, and that's, the, that's the sort of irony that I keep noticing is that when it works to your favor, you're very happy to get the court to do the hard work, which is that you, don't, you can't do by changing people's minds and getting them to see this differently. Um, I wonder if uh, I'll ask you about one more thing, and then I want to ask you about some other, another topic, but I'm very curious about. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to look at this article by Norman Wang I sent you. Um, did you have a chance? Or, I, I didn't have a chance okay, to look okay. at it super in depth. I guess, but I, I will just say that um, it was a, it's an interesting article to me because uh, it, it's written by a doctor. He's a practicing doctor and um, he's a professor. And, and this is not a subject that doctors often write about. In fact, they, they usually don't write about it, don't comment about it. He wrote an article and he published in a cardiology journal and he, he tried to go through the history of the law. And, and as, as far as I can tell, um, he, I think he summarized it fairly accurately. I think there's, there, you know, he, he's really sort of seized the way the court has ruled in this way. Um, he, I think he was a little bit critical of the current law. And I think he, he sort of is more in sort of a John Roberts tradition that he wants to go take the court in a direction where, um, we, we truly make it impermissible to con consider this and that, and that any consideration of race is itself discrimination based on race. Um, that's the way he saw it. Now, I guess um, he, he got a lot of, per the, the thing that made it messy was that when he wrote this, you know, and of course, medicine, especially at institutes of higher education is a very left-leaning, progressive thinking kind of business. And he got a lot of trouble and he ended up being demoted and, and had his paper retracted. And, and I thought that was a little heavy handed because I thought that he actually falls into kind of, he, there are people on his side, even if we don't, you know, sympathize with what he has to say. Um, but my question is about, I guess, the law school. I mean, there are left-leaning legal thinkers and scholars like yourself, um, who you, you actually clerked for, you know, sort of a centrist or, you know, right of center judge with, with Kennedy. Um, um, there are people who, um, are, are maybe more to the left of you and, and there are people on the conservative side of legal thinking. Um, how does the, the law school, um, handle, the, the issue of, I mean, having freedom for faculty members to 
argue in their direction while simultaneously preserving a culture of legal um, school that is inclusive and, and doesn't make people feel um, picked on or, or intimidated. How, does, how do you all negotiate this um, and, and how, do we, how do you tolerate differences of opinions in, in a legal school? So law schools have a pretty strong, robust understanding about academic freedom. And I think the general tenor is, you know, you are allowed to explore arguments in your scholarship and commentary, you know, within your field of expertise. And again, as a general matter, that is not usually going to make you unfit to teach in the classroom. That being said, you know, in the classroom and in dealing with students, you know, there is also the expectation that you treat everyone with respect and that make sure everyone is welcome um, in the classroom. But I do think that academic writings are often treated as separate from your ability to maintain a inclusive, welcoming classroom environment, although Obviously, there are going to be some difficult cases that blur the distinction between the two. Yeah. Um, but I think that's generally how law schools try to approach that. I see. Yeah, my worry, of course, is that um, sometimes being too heavy-handed with someone who is on the wrong side of history can backfire because it makes them come out as a victim uh, and distracts from the issue of you know what they were saying. Um, so that's that, that's what I thought happened in this case. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a t- it's a difficult balancing act between staking out positions that make sure everyone feels welcome and also signaling what positions are truly out of bounds. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't entertain right. arguments about why we should go back to a regime of slavery, right? right? Like that's not going to be an accepted (laughs) argument um, while also ensuring that you are, you know, again, not doing something um, that would be counterproductive or backfire. I want to ask you a question on a different topic, but since I have your, your time for like 10 more minutes, I thought I'd ask you this. Um, this was something that I was reading, and, um, and maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's empirically not the case. Um, maybe it's, it's legally problematic. Um, but here's what I was reading. Um, you know, um, obviously with this new Supreme Court, one of the central issues that's at risk is, is jurisprudence around Roe v. Wade and, and the downstream cases from that. And, and I think many liberals are concerned that this court when Coney Barrett will, when given the opportunity, start to erode those laws and, and, and if she can, do away with Roe v. Wade. Um, we had a couple of cases that you discussed very nicely in your podcast about the um, admitting privileges uh, laws in Louisiana and Texas that are just cookie cutter laws that are meant to... Um, see if the court has the appetite to erode the abortion um, um, uh, uh, freedoms that, that the court has previously granted. Um, one of the things I was reading was a legal scholar who, and I don't know if this was Posner or somebody else, but it was somebody, somebody in a pragmatic tradition who argued that they thought that Roe v. Wade actually didn't guarantee a lot. And this is what their argument was, which is that if you are a woman in one of these states, these red southern states, 
the, the realistic opportunity to have an abortion, if you so desire or need or in that situation, realistically, that has already very, very limited. Um, they have done so many things to make it very unwelcome for people who do that work, to get that done, um, to, to have that safely. You have to travel often hundreds of miles. Um, if you're poor, you may not even know it's available. There are people who try to hide that it's available from you, deceive you. Um, so, so this person's point was that just as a practical matter, we think this law is so powerful, but realistically for a poor minority woman in the South having an abortion, the odds of that, if they want that, is far, far lower than that same person if they were plopped in the center of New York City. Um, and then this person, I think this legal person was arguing that the political backlash from this um, is, 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 it, it offsets the benefit that the law provides in an empirical way, irrespective of what the merits of the law are. Um, you're somebody who thinks about this issue. You're you know, very um, articulate and passionate about this issue. I wonder if, if you've thought about this, is it just clearly not the case? This is, that's not a true argument. Um, um, is there some truth to it? Is it? Does it really reveal that we need to go beyond Roe v. Wade and have additional things? How do we, how do we think about that, that question? I think there is truth to it in that nothing about Roe versus Wade ensures reliable access for all women mm -hmm. to abortions. You know, the court, for example, has said that states can refuse to fund abortions under Medicaid programs and state-supported health insurance programs. So for poor women, access to abortion has always been much more difficult than for women with reliable access to, you know, more protective health insurance. Um, and even under Roe versus Wade, you know, states can express a fair amount of disapprobium mm -hmm. for abortion, just making it more difficult for women to obtain it. Um, that being said, Roe does prevent states from limiting abortion more than they already do. So technically, the governing law regarding abortion is no longer Roe versus Wade. It's Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I'll come back to that in a second. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that law has prevented Texas from closing, you know, 30 plus of the abortion mm -hmm. clinics in the state. It prevented Louisiana from closing two out of the three in the state. It prevented Mississippi from closing its last remaining abortion clinic. So to say that it has no practical force whatsoever is, I think, not true. I okay. Although I agree it doesn't ensure access to abortion for all women. Okay. But the reality is that in its absence, abortion would become even harder right. for women to access and and would therefore prevent more women from accessing abortion than the existing system does. Now, I'm also not sure whether overturning Roe would generate the kind of backlash that would ensure better protections for abortion. In Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the decision that I mentioned you know, the court said we're basically junking the legal test from Roe versus Wade and substituting a different standard that is much more permissive mm -hmm. of abortion restrictions. The court effectively did the same thing last term in the case involving the Louisiana admitting privileges requirement. And there wasn't any kind of progressive backlash. You know, there isn't progressive backlash mm -hmm. when the court says states can refuse to fund abortion as right. part of Medicaid insurance programs. And so nothing the court has done thus far to make it easier for states to restrict abortion has generated the kind of backlash that people fantasize 
will happen mm. if Roe is overturned. Um, and so I think that that is hoping for something that might not become reality. And the lesson might be that if you want to ensure access to abortion, you have to be working for that now and not expecting there's going to be some magical moment that will just galvanize the country to ensure, you know, safe, reliable access to abortion. I see. Um, I'll ask you just one last question because I know our time is running out and it's late there. Um, I guess my last question for you is, I mean, you know, most people who listen to this are in medicine. And, you know, the way we think about medicine is whenever we have disputes, there's always this thing we can appeal to, which is like, does this drug work in this situation? We're like, oh, well, we just randomize a thousand people and we'll know the answer, you know? Um, some of us look at the law and um, I guess we, I guess I, maybe this is mostly me, um, I worry that people can can reason their way to whatever their preconceived notion was. Um, and I particularly worry that uh, with this right of center court that has, you know, just such a knack for always finding the right, um, the right argument that gets them right where they want to be. Um, and it wasn't always this way. I mean, I think the justices weren't always just so tightly adherent to the political philosophy of a party. Um, I guess my question is, I mean, what, how do you retain your hope uh, seeing a court 6-3 in this direction that's likely to move, I think, in a bad way on all these issues, from voting rights to abortion to affirmative action to things that that, that progressives, tools that and, and potential to strike down any progressive law that gets passed in the near future, um, in a way, um, making it harder for democracy to move us in a progressive direction in society. Um, uh, and, and they're going to come up with whatever reason they want to do this, uh, at least it looks like to me. Um, how do you retain your optimism? How do you think, you know, how, how are we going to make progress in this space? How do you, how do you think about that? I'm not sure I have a ton of optimism <laughs> about where the court and the courts are going to be going in the near future. What I do take some solace in or I'm somewhat hopeful about is, you know, a majority of the country rejected Donald Trump. Um, a majority of the country supports things like LGBT equality. A majority of the country supports women's access to reproductive health care. Um, and I hope that that majority of the country finds a way to win elections so they can actually implement those policies and ensure that the courts will not invalidate them. I don't know exactly how or when that's going to happen, um, but I take the increased political involvement that a lot of people had in the 2020 election um, together with, you know, more general measures of where public opinion is as some reasons for hope. Professor Lippman, thank you so much for your time. This was really educational. Um, I'm sorry you had to listen to me try to summarize the law. It's quite bad. Uh, I should stick to what I know, which is um, hematology oncology. Um, but um, I think it was really, I think it's really important. And I really appreciate you doing this because, I mean, people in medicine, um, they have strong feelings about it. Um, and I think many of those feelings are are, are um, perhaps um perhaps a right of center, I worry, in a lot of people. And I think it's it's because there's some misunderstandings about what exactly is the legal dispute, what exactly the law is, what exactly the purpose was, uh, some of the things that you talked about so nicely. So I, I think it'll be a great benefit to, to this audience. Um, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much for having me.
I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Patrick DiMartino. Dr. DiMartino is a pediatric hematologist oncologist at OHSU. He is a graduating fellow, and he is semi-entering the job market next year. We can talk about that. Dr. DiMartino, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. Just before I started recording, you were asking me about how I've had to shift gears and talk about COVID. What were you saying? Yeah, it's... uh... I would imagine a fair bit of your day is spent at least thinking or uh, reading about these things. And uh, for me, I try to be enlightened and aware, but it's just a black hole. <laughs> There's just so much out there. I was just lamenting it. I was like, oh, God, yeah, I have to spend, you know, I am spending a fair chunk of my time reading about COVID and thinking about the policy. Um, and not that that's really what I was set out to do, uh, but I feel like I'm kind of compelled to do it because... You know, there's just so many things out there that I think are very simplified and incorrectly put and just couldn't possibly be true. Um, You know, like just today, that El Pais article, you know, um, I see all these quote unquote COVID experts, these people who are, you know, semi-health related who tweet exclusively about COVID. Um, They're tweeting this wonderful article and the graphics are stunning. Um, It's just that all of the numbers in the article could not possibly be true. It's just got to be a crock of nonsense because we have actual data of like, you know, how often does virus spread between spouses and family members and household contacts. And then you read this thing about what would happen if you had a dinner party, what would happen if five people got together in a room. Um, and it's not compatible with those numbers. And, and I see so many people tweeting it. And I think to myself, like, what's wrong? Do they, have they not thought about it for 10 seconds before they tweet? I think that's the answer. They haven't thought about it even for 10 seconds. So anyway, so you see that I get pulled into COVID. Now this podcast is like, all this COVID in schools and things like that. What a, what a disaster, Patrick. I think even for people that are like the first percentile in terms of having the educational capacity to really interpret the stuff, like it's just the opportunity cost of sitting down to think about it. Like probably the average physician or master's of public health trained person doesn't have the time maybe to, maybe I'm just an optimist. No, I think people yeah. benefit the doubt, but it yeah, is just a huge time suck. It's a huge time suck. It is a huge time suck. I mean, you know, it's not the, obviously there are tremendous problems that people are struggling with, but um, I think, yeah, it's a time suck. And a lot of people have had to put their real work on the back burner. Um, I, I tried really hard not to do that. So like, you know, the first few months of pandemic, I was like full steam ahead on all the projects that I was working on. Um, but lately, yeah, I think I have given up more of my, my time. It is an opportunity cost reading about this stuff. Someday COVID will end and all this COVID knowledge is not going to be very relevant for anything I'm interested in talking about. So, so hugely important for population health now. Now, yeah. I can't watch them bungle anything more. Bungle, bungle. <laughs> okay, so um, I, I, I gave you just a snippet of an introduction. Let's talk about who you really are. Um, you're a PT Monk Fellow at OHSU, and a few years ago, I think... Um, you know, we came to we you came to meet me, and and you were interested in health policy and pediatric hematology oncology, which is a very different beast than adult hemonc, as you learned while you did this article. And then, um, you know, I think we set out to do this project. It might have been, I don't know, three, two, three years ago, really. Yeah, you have a you have a you have a panicked look in your eyes thinking about how many years ago it was that we started, and um, and we started working on this. By that I mean. 
I talked to you and then you started working on this. <laughs> and um, it's finally coming in print. And that's why you're here on the podcast. By the time we release this audio, it will already be in print and it's going to be in JAMA Internal Medicine. Patrick, tell us, tell us the title of this paper and then maybe give a little bit of the background. What is this paper titled? The paper's titled Potential Cost Implications for All U.S. FDA Oncology Drug Approvals in 2018. Mm. Um, and what we really sought out to do was to describe the potential costs uh, associated with these drugs from a national perspective, uh, while also, and maybe more importantly, thinking about like what would be a plausible level of utilization um, of the drugs amongst eligible patients. And I think when we first met, this was kind of in, in the, the period where there was recognition that the growth of cancer drug spending was outpacing uh, the vast majority of other realms in medicine, um, and that a greater proportion of the drug development pipeline is being devoted to cancer drugs. I think currently it's a little bit over a third um, of all drugs in development are cancer drugs. And as you've described, like the market authorization, getting that FDA stamp of approval often is a huge financial return for companies, regardless of uh, what the clinical benefit might be. And then right around when we first met, it was uh, kind of in the wake of 2018 being this record year for total number of new entrants into the U.S. market mm -hmm. uh, having received FDA approval. And I think that was probably the impetus for sort of your interest in like thinking about, okay, like doing the back of the envelope math, uh, what would all these drugs cost if you gave them to everybody that's eligible? And that was really our, our first question uh, and sort of a hypothetical thing because you would never expect 100% diffusion or utilization yeah. of these drugs across all eligible patients. Um, that was kind of our first question. If you give all the drugs to all the eligible patients in the U.S., what is the associated incremental cost um, for cancer drug spending? Yeah, that's well and put. Then, yeah, go on. And then really just the second piece, second question would be, if you think about like in the real world, there's discounting, nobody pays full price, and then there's variable market diffusion or mm -hmm. uptake of these drugs. And how do those two sort of factors possibly influence spending? And specifically like what percentage of eligible patients can receive these new drugs while also kind of keeping national expenditures where we would expect them to be. And that is, I think, the, the, the even more clever part of the paper that, you know, I certainly never saw coming when we started. Um, yeah, it was, it was based on that simple premise that you, that you allude to, which is, you know, we know prior to this paper, we're spending, you know, X billion dollars, and you can fill those in, X billion dollars on cancer drugs. And the paper had a simple question, which was, let's just take all the drugs in 2018 that were FDA approved. And it was a, a good year for marketing authorizations. Let's just take all those drugs and, and, Imagine we gave them to everybody in the U.S. With who was eligible for those drugs who, you know, was fit enough to get them. And, and, and let's say 100% market diffusion cost isn't an issue. What would that cost be? Um, and, and that displaces some other drugs. So that's built into this ca calculation. So I think one of the approvals you had was Echelon 1, which is AVD plus Brentuximab, which is displacing ABVD bleomycin. So Brentuximab displacing bleo. And Everybody who's getting AAVD, Adcetris, or Brentuximab, Vidotin, um, instead of ABVD, they're paying for the Brentuximab, and they're not paying for the Adcet. They're not paying for the Bleo. So you're going to say, what's the cost of the Brentuximab minus the cost of the Bleo? You're going to give them credit for that displacement. But some drugs are approved, and there is no displacement because we weren't giving any drug in that space. So, for instance, a drug in a maintenance setting where we didn't have maintenance before. I, I don't know all the examples from the top of my head, but. There are many such examples where we used to observe someone until they progressed. Now we're filling that, filling that crack in the sidewalk with maintenance. 
that's the strategy to how you get the market share. Uh, so maintenance therapy there, um, that's not going to displace anything. So you're not subtracting in those situations. And so it was just a simple idea, which was, you know, just roughly, what's all this going to cost if we really made it available? And if it turns out that healthcare cancer drug spending doesn't go up at the rate that we predict, that gap can only be explained by the factors you talk about. One, people aren't getting it. They don't have access to it. Two, um, people don't take it for as long. Or three, there's some discounting, um, some back-end deals that we're not privy to. Um, those are the three things there. Um, but as you started working on this, I feel like you became a self-trained uh, health economist. Uh, you know, you started out, and I think you knew a little bit about health economics, um, but in the process, the two years that you worked on this, you read a lot more. And by the end of it, I was the one taking notes from you because you had a lot of things to teach me about market diffusion and things like that. Do you feel like that's a true summary of, of, of what you learned along the way? Yeah, I mean, I when we first met, I think I knew nothing about sort of healthcare finance and really uh, I was totally naive and then just took me so long to go through 46 approvals and probably 100 plus pivotal studies that uh, over that period I learned a lot of extra stuff along the way um, and I read a lot of really random things. Which I yes think helps. and this is the takeaway message if someone's listening to this and they're not interested in the content which is that one can learn things by reading things that's a, that's a, that's still true in this world it's a form of long distance learning it's not zoom it's called a book. But anyway, you read a lot and you learned a lot of things. Um, so, so okay, why don't, you, why don't we jump into the results a little bit? Because I think this is where it gets really interesting. Um, there are many drugs approved in this time period, um, this one year of drug approvals. And you're a pediatric hemonc doctor, so for many of them, you, you had to learn the indication, the tumor, what we're doing. You studied, you learned all that. So you did half an adult oncology fellowship in the process. Um, uh, you're nodding, um, and 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 you try you set about this calculation. So maybe before you tell us what you found, tell us what was cancer drug spending the you know the cumulative drug spending the year prior, and then how much would it cost if we paid for all these drugs, and then maybe tell us kind of how you ran that calculation. So in 2017, in the U.S., we spent uh, roughly 50 billion dollars on cancer drugs as a whole, mm -hmm. uh, and that doesn't account for infusion costs or anything. It's just the drugs. Um, and then we found we had 46 drugs included in our analysis. And if you gave those 46 drugs to everyone that was eligible, that would cost about $40 billion net cost. And that's having subtracted $7 billion saved on the displaced therapies. Mm, so what you are suggesting is in a hypothetical world where these drugs are broadly available, that we would almost double the spending on cancer drugs in a single year if we were to cover the drugs approved in the next year. And that would represent a little over 1% increase in total health expenditures in the U.S. But that's not possible. It was a pretty big... Yeah, yeah. It's a huge amount. That's a huge amount of increase, right? Yeah. Um, great. Absolutely not possible. So okay. I, I've done... like I'm kind of interested in these like budget impact analyses. And this is always the crux of the issue is trying to estimate what like a realistic level of diffusion would be. Um, and without sort of industry proprietary data, that could be a really hard uh, estimate to make. Um, and that's kind of where the, the second piece of our paper comes in. Now, if you want to move on to that or kind of hang out in the space of thinking about just the obscene net cost. I guess maybe talk for a minute about the obscene cost and like how you actually had to do it. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, 
Uh, how did you go about this calculation? Um, it, it, it couldn't have been, it couldn't have been easy. How did you go about doing it? So let's say, uh, first you identify the 46 ish approvals on the FDA website and you take the indication and then we needed to estimate what the eligible population would be in terms of size. And we used a 2019 U S population estimate. Um, and we used a mix of American Cancer Society, SEER data, and a little bit of just peer-reviewed literature to fill in the gaps to estimate how many patients would be eligible for a given approval. And we used as sort of well-focused of a, an indication as we could, including, including molecular subtypes, et cetera. Um, and then we arrived at a number. I think that the, the mean number of patients eligible for each drug was about 9,000, um, but the range was quite broad. And this was by far the most tedious task. And tell us about that, because there's no um, master list of how many people are presenting with metastatic or advanced cancer. So one has to go about doing their best way of estimating that. So we crafted a pretty obscenely long supplement, really detailing all of our estimates and references. Um, and there were, there were some methods that had been used previously, um, i.e. using for uh, like incident precedent presentation with uh, metastatic disease, we used mortality data, mm -hmm. uh, which has been used before, uh, I think in some of your papers. Um, and that was probably the one of the bigger assumptions that we made. Um, but for most other things, I think that we got pretty good estimates and um, we, we showed our work in excruciating detail. Excruciating. That'll keep the piranhas away. Okay, so now tell us about the second part of it. So what you're saying is the first result was um, even accounting for displacement, which is interesting because, of course, displacement doesn't displace all that much because these are displacing older, cheaper drugs. And in some cases, they're not displacing anything at all. Um, even accounting for displacement, if we paid for all these drugs approved in a single year, we would take the budget from $50 billion to, what, $90 billion or something like that. Um, and, and we don't take the budget that high. We just simply do not do that. It doesn't go up that much year to year. If it did, there might be more of an impetus to actually deal with these costs. But it doesn't. So if it doesn't go up that much... There can only be one of three things going on. People don't take these drugs as long, which would lower the cumulative spending. People aren't getting these drugs at all. Um, or there's a discount that we don't see. Um, how do you go about thinking about those things? Um, and, and how did you ultimately conclude what you think the market uptake might be? Yeah. Um, so thinking about all these drugs in aggregate, uh, it's, I think, impossible to try to go about it sort of from the front side using those three pieces that you've mentioned, um, because they're such a heterogeneous group of drugs. Um, so we, we sort of went and made kind of a backdoor method for estimating what a plausible degree of uptake would be uh, for the drugs in aggregate. So we know that industry forecasting suggests that annual growth of cancer drug spending uh, has been and will continue to be around 12 to 15 percent per year, year on year increase, which is about seven and a half billion dollars per year in 2019, 2020. So we kind of know about how much incremental increase in cost there will be year to year. So we asked, like, what percentage of eligible patients can get these new drugs and keep the annual spending threshold increase uh, below that $7.5 billion threshold. Importantly, that this ignores other things that contribute to that $7.5 billion year-on-year -year increase, like old drugs far outpace inflation in terms of their annual increase, or sort of shifting demographics also influence um, increasing expenditures. So we really kind of model the best-case scenario. But long story short, if you 
give a little bit of discount. I think we, let's say a generous, like 23% discount, which is sort of equivalent to the Medicaid best price guarantee. So you give a discount of 23%. Less than 25% of eligible patients can get the 2018 oncology drug approvals and keep that sort of mm-hmm. stay under that $7.5 billion threshold. I see. Which I think was quite surprising. So what do you, what do you think this means? I mean, what, 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 what does that mean? I think there might be some truth in that. We do know there's, there's sort of diffuse, there's low market uptake. So we know that many of the drugs are approved with less than impressive um, evidence of efficacy. I think just over a quarter of these drugs demonstrated any amount of improvement in overall survival. Oh, I see. Um, so, so what you're saying is they're, they're home runs. <laughs> some of them, a, a small number, a small uh, number, yeah, a, small the, number, a, a small pretty number. underwhelming, uh, number of these drugs uh, are home runs. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other interesting piece would be like, what if there was a, a new market entrant or a drug class that was truly a home run, uh, and there was demand for more than 25%. I think that is maybe the other interesting piece here. Um, could a, a new therapeutic class really disrupt things? Um, but I think that you look at like the hep C drugs, um, obviously a very different space, but there have been some issues with affordability uh, and patient access. Uh, when you have a truly innovative, efficacious new therapeutic class, um, I think it's been shown that the, the price of these drugs is untenable if lots of people want them. Mm. And I think that's what they're going for. Um, so, so I guess your overall take is, you know, this was a project that sought to um, highlight, I think, the fact that the prices are unsustainable. Let's imagine we have a really transformative therapy. So this is, I guess, where we're going with this really transformative, like the hep C drugs. It actually cures everybody. It's a drug that, um, let's say you can give it to PS4, you know? Don't say PS5. PS4! <laughs> let's say you can give it to PS4. Um, if you can give it to PS4 or better, performance status 4 or higher, um, it's a really transformative drug. And let's say it costs what these cancer drugs cost. What's going to happen to the budget? What, what would happen if we had our own sofosbuvir? So I think this is being addressed a little bit right now in the gene therapy space where uh, people are really optimistic. And um, the this is kind of where alternative reimbursement methodology is maybe uh, gaining some recognition. And uh, I guess this did come up a little bit with uh, like Kim Raya, Carti. So um, payers and industry recognized that uh, half a million dollars upfront uh, was not consistent with sort of payers keeping their budget in check. Because for payers, it's really all about the short-term affordability. They have a time horizon of maybe two, maybe three years, uh, where they need to keep their balance, their budget balanced. And so I think this is something that I'm interested in for, for other purposes, but the industry is starting to tout the, the promise of alternative reimbursement methodology um, to make things more affordable. And really all that does is defray the cost down the road. Uh, for the, there's a new gene therapy that's approved in Europe for beta thal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will likely be approved for sickle cell in the U.S. in the coming years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've offered in Germany a five-year annuity payment, mm-hmm. which lets payers pass the cost on to the population while keeping their budget balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would imagine that would be the route we would take in oncology as well. I see. A five-year annuity. All payment. hypothetical. I but. see. I see. I've heard people say, uh, you take a mortgage on your house, let's take a mortgage on your life. 
Um, I think to some degree, it, it, it strikes us sort of as sort of a fundamental un-American thing to do that that we would have to sort of leverage our future earnings against our healthcare now. Um, but um, it seems like we might be going that way, I guess, is what you're thinking. I don't know. What do you think about it? Do you think about it from an ethical point of view or do you sort of just think about it agnostically from a numbers point of view? Yeah. I think that um, if it gets people access to the drugs in the short term, that's important. Okay. Um, because if there is a truly a transformative drug, I would want my patient to have access to it. Um, so from kind of a physician taking care of patients, per sec, I, I guess I'm agnostic. Um, but I think the greater issue is sort of uh, really a policy issue. And like, what do we value? And um, I think it's really complicated. I don't have a good answer. Um, but I, I don't feel that annuity payments are going to be this magic answer. Uh, and same holds true, I think, for annuity payments with um, sort of outcome-based, like with the CAR-T therapy. Um, if you didn't maintain, I think, a CR, yes. uh, you basically got your money back. Yes. But, if you um, didn't achieve a CR in one month, I think, with Tisagenic mm -hmm. Lucil and pediatric ALL, you got your money back. But I guess the challenge with that was, you know, they know their CR rate is like 77, 83. It's like 80%. So... Um, it's a very expensive like process for you to document who's in CR in a month, and it will roughly translate to a 20% discount, which roughly would make Tisagen the Glucil cost the same amount as uh, uh, Axi, Axicel, yeah. right? Yeah, um, which is $300,000, right? So it's like um, a lot of work. You know, um, you know how sometimes you have to like collect all these coupons to get a discount at the store. It's like a lot of work to just get like the fixed discount. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, it made me think about that. But I guess... You know, what you're hinting at is, is sort of a really deep, deep issue in this space. And I don't know if you, if you have thought about it that much, but I thought a little bit about it. But I guess I'll also express some uncertainty here, which is that, I mean, these cancer drugs cost an arm and a leg. They cost a lot. And their rate of change of price is astonishing. They cost way more today than they did 10 years ago. And, 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 and really, that's really what you're highlighting is that they cost so much that just to pay for one year of approval um, would be ludicrous. Um, I guess my question is... Um, do the, the open question in the space is, do these incredibly high costs sustain innovation? And they certainly, I think, fuel people pouring money in the space. Like you pointed out one in three, um, drugs and drug development are cancer drugs. That wouldn't be the case if people didn't know the regulatory hurdle is low, just response rate and you get to market for the most part. Um, and the, the profits are enormous because even though that these are rather quote unquote, rarer diseases, rare diseases, um, the cost per, per unit is so high that they can still make a fortune. So that does encourage people, you know, investing in the space and funding drug compounds. But is that the same as innovation? You know, are we getting more Gleevex or are we getting more cabozantinibs? You know, are we getting more transformative drugs or are we just getting a lot of regorafenibs and cabos and me too duplicative next in class Pepsi drugs? Um, I guess a few things you talked about hint at this. One, you said, you know, what percent of the drugs in our data set improve survival and how much survival did they improve? Um, and, and I guess, too, the, the question I would ask for you is like the philosophical question of if we paid less for these drugs, what are some of the ways that would impact the entire drug development pipeline? How would that, how would that affect the, this world? You have an uncertain look on your face, You're which is probably some, the honest look. Yeah, yeah some very pie-in-the-sky questions. Yeah. Um, I agree. That I, I definitely am interested in thinking about how to better incentivize the, the, ther 
the development of therapies that are going to most help people. Um, whereas I think our current system incentivizes development of therapies that will like best help the bottom line of industry. And I think in some ways that, that is uh, um, something that's great about our system and it fuels lots of innovation and we have lots of new drugs, but they're not necessarily the drugs that we need. Um, I think that like there's obviously lots in the news written about like value-based payments and um I'm no expert on that, but I think that probably something like in Germany, uh, I think that their system probably is a little bit more apt at incentivizing companies to have new innovative therapies. Uh, whereas if you're just developing me too drugs, which yeah. in the U S can be wonderfully lucrative um, in other markets, you're not necessarily going to like have the same yield. Um, so maybe that would be one approach. And I think that that's a, a smart way to look at it. I want to come back to something you wrote in the paper, which I'm just looking at now. So it'll be out November 9th. So this podcast should be November 9th-ish. It should be dropping. Uh, Here's what it says. This is your conclusion paragraph, which I think you wrote more than me because I think you did a lot more than I did on this paper. Um, Here's what it says. If widely used, the new cancer drugs approved by the FDA in 2018 would drastically increase cancer drug spending in the U.S. Alternatively, only low-level market diffusion of the new drugs allows for maintenance of budgetary trends. Industry forecasting suggests low-level uptake of the new drugs is most likely. While cancer drug pricing and expenditures deserve the attention received, the financial state of affairs would be far worse if newer proof therapies were more effective and used widely. The current drug pricing system is likely contingent on a sizable proportion of eligible patients not receiving the latest FDA-approved therapies. So that's a very provocative thing to say, that, that that's really what the system depends on. Otherwise, it would break. But you, you think that that's true. I mean, there's no way around that conclusion when you look at the data the way you've looked at the data. Yeah, I mean, you would have to expect that no one knows better than sort of manufacturers in projecting their sales uh, and their overhead costs and their, their, their needs from a revenue perspective. So um, you would expect that the drug prices are set and it's contingent upon not a lot of people getting because the drugs aren't all that great. Yes. And I think there's some, there's some people out there who say things like, well, if we really had a curative drug, a transformative drug, you would just take it the one time and you'd be cured. And I was like, I don't think you study drug approval because my friend, you would have maintenance curative therapy till, till forever. You would just keep taking it to maintain your CR. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Why would you ever stop taking it? Uh, you, that's really how we play things these days. We, of course, had Ippy where we gave a few doses. Then we had Nevo where we just keep it on forever. Um, so I, I think that that would, I, I'm not necessarily sure that it would be a one and done kind of thing. Um, it's a very interesting paper, potential cost implications of all U.S. Food and Drug Administration approvals in 2018. Um, and I guess the person we didn't give a shout out to that we should give a shout out to is Milos, um, our second author. This paper is written by Patrick, who is the first and corresponding author, you, Milos, whose last name I'll never pronounce correctly, and, and me. So it was a three-author paper, and Milos, um, I think, provided you know, really important contributions on helping us think through some of the displacement and on getting us, getting us the important thing we needed, which is the price of these drugs, which is really not so easy to come by. Um, and he's a terrific colleague of mine from the NCI, um, and, and actually one of the most uh, really thoughtful oncologists who writes a blog um, that I believe is called Infinite Regress, which I, which I really do like. Um, but there are only three authors on this paper. So what's going on there, Patrick? There should be at least 15, 20 authors. Where are the other authors? Maybe a medical writer. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I've yet to get my 
Boku Bucks grants, uh, so I'm still writing my own papers. This is actually my first like legitimate publication, um, so it was a great great experience. Um, but yeah, we were a, we were a lean crew. A lean crew. We're efficient. We're we're uh, yeah. We 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 got it done. Um, oh, that's a great feeling. So that's your. It's like your first a big paper. Um, so that's good. That's good. Um, why don't you tell listeners in the last minute of our conversation? Why don't we just tell listeners about? Um, you know. I, I don't know if I should say this. Some, every once in a while, some student comes to me and says, should I do pediatric hemonk and adult hemonk? And I said, I can't answer that question for you, but I think one of the things you got to know you're getting into is you got to know the job market situation. So I would say talk to some PT monk fellows because adult hemonk for all the problems and challenges that we face, um, you know, there is an abundance of jobs. I mean, academic jobs and private jobs and industry jobs or whatever. Pediatric hemonc market, my understanding is that the majority of that work is done in academic medical centers and there just are not enough jobs for the people graduating. Um, I wonder if you might talk for a minute about what was it like to be a peds hemonc doctor in the job hunt? Is it as tough as people say? And what do you advise somebody out there who says, I'm, I love oncology i love hematology and i love kids i want to do it pd pt monk are you still a proponent of it yeah um i will say that my experience in the last few months of sort of as a third year fellow looking around the job market um are occurring in a pretty unique time with covid and hospitals really having to tighten uh, their coffers a bit but also kind of using some of experience from my co-fellows in the past um, i think that it it is definitely a challenging market when you compare it to what adult Hemonc fellows would experience or other pediatric subspecialists. Mm -hmm. um, I think within the peds subspecialist realm, we probably have one of the more competitive job markets. And one probably needs to be okay with being flexible, whether that's being flexible with what realm of peds hemonc you'll go into, whether it's pea, solid tumors, neural, uh, or flexible with, from a geographic perspective. Um, right now, I, before I sort of fell into an opportunity, um, I, I kind of wouldn't need, would have needed to be willing to go anywhere in the country to get a job. Mm. Um, and, it, and I think for a lot of people, that might not be the right thing. Um, but if you can be flexible, I think it is doable. Conversely, if you want to become a pediatric rheumatologist, you could probably work anywhere in the world that you want. Really? Is that true? Groups to have you. Yeah. I mean, things like Peds Poem or Peds Room, uh, the job market, they, they need more docs very badly. And what about Peds ID and Peds Endo? ID, I'm not certain. I think Endo also has a pretty good job market. Uh, and relative to PT Monk, it's like night and day. And what about uh, Peds so cards? Definitely, I don't know about Peds cards. Um, yeah, I'm not familiar. I don't interface with them enough. To, I see. To yeah, I, I was. I wrote an article recently about com complaining about these extra fellowships because you know somebody was like, um, you know, I've attended on transplant service when I worked at OHSU. You know, I used to attend on 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 on, on that service on on um, whatever they called it, red or whatever. That I, I gosh, I, it's fu it's funny how you leave a hospital and then you Hurry. forget you forget all you bury those memories of whatever <laughs> they call these services is some silly name. But you know, I attended on that service, um, and you know, my experience at transplant is that I did you know. I don't know, maybe 16 weeks over the course of my fellowship, like a few, several months because we had long transplant rotations and, and I rotated on NCI and NHLBI, so I had kind of double dipped on transplant. Um, and, and, and then, of course, like anything of medicine that, you know, when you graduate fellowship, you never know it all and you actually never know it all even when you practice and you keep learning every single time you do it and you keep getting better. Um, so, I, you know, I did it. And uh, now, of course, there's all these new fellowships, a BMT fellowship. Uh, I've seen myeloma fellowship, lymphoma fellowship. Um, 
you know, I, 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 I have a difficult time being impartial because I, I know what's really going on. And what's really going on is it's a scam, man. It's a scam. Everyone knows it's a scam that these hospitals want to keep people training forever because they're making money, especially on somebody who's an advanced trainee. Like, you know, you can operate and basically do the work of a you know, a faculty member. And then now, of course, you're, you're another year of fellowship. I have a, a colleague, um, you know, he was telling me he did a phase one fellowship and they're asking him to stay on for a second year. I'm like, I mean, when will this end? People need to get jobs. At some point, they need to go and actually make some money, pay back the loans that they have taken. We can't just keep adding on fellowships. And this argument that, well, you didn't learn it all in the training, that's always going to be true. You could train until you die and you'd still, you know, you know, if you went into practice the year after, you know, you you wouldn't know it all. Um, and the last thing I'd say is I think of that, you ever watch the documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, and there is Jiro's son, and he's like 60 years old, and they call him the <laughs> apprentice to his father's sushi place. And then like, there's like a moment where he like looks wistfully into the camera and he's like, someday I will be the head chef. I was like, this guy is a face, like he's, a, yeah. he's almost Medicare eligible, and he's like still an apprentice. And I was like, that's what we're gonna do in medicine. That's where we're headed. Okay, so thoughts on this, Too much, this excess training, this you could always keep training? Within the last three days, I've talked with two sort of co-fellows from other institutions, uh, sort of former co-residents. And um, both people told me they were thinking about uh, sub-specializing in sort of our realm uh, to, quote, get their foot in the door. And both of them used that word, foot in the door. Um, And I think that for people that feel um, like really probably desperate um, in a competitive job market, it is appealing to go to a new place and hope that that fellowship will translate into a job. Um, but I, I don't know how often it does translate into a job in the place of your dreams, but, um, it, it is a lot of time and, and really lost income, uh, to be, to be doing these sub, sub special sub fellowships. Um, I've been lucky here at OHSU. I, um, my mentors have been kind of encouraged me to do what I want and there's no, no expectation that I, I do extra training. Um, so I think I'm fortunate in that sense. You're fortunate in that but sense. But it, it does feel like a bit of a black hole, uh, for some of my friends. Mm, yep. Well, on that positive note, we will <laughs> we will we will di- direct readers to to the paper now out, Jam Internal Medicine. Thanks, Pat. Pleasure working with you, and uh, hope to have you back on the podcast. To talk about more um, more oncology, uh, health policy, and cost. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. It's always great to chat. I'm here in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. John Mandrola. John Mandrola should need no introduction to this audience. He is a legend of social media. Well, for a, for a former legend, he's former legend, and he is a practicing electrophysiologist in Louisville, Kentucky. He is a very thoughtful physician and the brains behind the medical conservatism movement which is a hard right fringe movement, obviously. That's what the internet tells me, Dr. Mandrola. Um, No, it actually has nothing to do with the political left or the political right. It has to do with slow medicine being prudent, adoption of new practices. But that's easily misconstrued when when nobody wants to read the paper. Dr. Mandrola, it's a pleasure to see you today. How are you? I'm great, Vinay. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) I really, um, you know, I've been looking forward to us chatting for a while. And 
boy, it's really the perfect time for us to have this conversation because we are on the heels of the election. Um, I think uh, the final call has not yet been made. Um, and I think it's perfect timing for the sorts of themes that we're going to explore in this discussion. So thanks so much for doing this. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. Hopefully we won't get canceled. <laughs> well, at least not me. You're on your own, Mandrola. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 John Mandrola, you, um, I don't, I don't know if listeners know this about you, but you know, you're a nice person. You're a really nice person. Um, and I, I feel the need to, to, to state that, uh, publicly because you've been, you've been called a lot of names recently on Twitter. You've stepped in it a few times, Mandrola. Yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> um, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Um, so, correct me if I say anything wrong, but I think one of the first things you said that got you on the bad side of hashtag MedTwitter was you sort of voiced the opinion that physicians should... Actually, no, you retweeted an article by... Um, I forget that I forget the authors, um, the author of it, but it was an article that Sally, Sally Sattel. Yeah, Sally Sattel. Um, and I think the theme of the article was really that doctors um, should be wary of involving themselves in political issues or something of that sort. I wonder if you might summarize how you view the theme of the article and and then I'll tell the listeners what uh, the feedback you got was. Yeah, so um, well, first of all, I mean, I, I'm a practicing physician and I love medicine and I love love what we do and I feel passionate about helping people. I mean, it's just it's just a really beautiful, beautiful job that we have. And um, what what I I guess my feeling about politics and policy in medicine is that um, you know, doctors are really we spend a lot of time taking care of patients. We, 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 it's not, it's not rocket science, but it's not easy either. I mean, you really have to work at it. And I think we can do a lot of good in the world by really focusing on helping our patients and, and when they're ill and take care of them. And what I, I guess, have a problem with is that, that we're experts in that, mm -hmm. but we're not really experts in policy. And, and I guess the example I would use is that if I have a African American patient with kidney disease and hypertension and, uh, that person lives in a disadvantaged neighborhood, I know that the social determinants of health are important for that person. Mm -hmm. I, I recognize it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I take it into consideration in, in caring for that person. But because I know that doesn't give me any, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of expertise on the best way to fix it. Maybe like Bernie Sanders way is better. Maybe, you know, um, uh, a conservative way is better. Maybe Elizabeth Warren. I don't know. I'm a doctor taking care of that person. Mm -hmm. And so we can have feelings as a person, but how could a group of doctors like the AMA or the ACC or, or any organization speak for all of us in terms of the right policy solution? And I think we just we just get over our skis when we when we think that there's one best answer. Mm -hmm. And I and I, I I guess that's the thrust. That's the thrust of the article. The thrust of my feeling. And I, I guess the only thing I would add quickly is that, you know, one of the reasons why I write about critical appraisal and about medicine and doctoring is that 
we, we really could be better at it. Of course, yeah. And, a and, lot of room to and, improve, and, and yeah. There's a lot of room to improve, myself included. And, you know, I've done a lot of dumb things. And I just, you know. Fragility we, we index. We interact with a what's that? <laughs> I said fragility index. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's a minor. The fragility index thing is a minor uh, 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 flub. But I mean, if we just practice being better at what we do, we can make the world a better place, uh-huh. and we can advocate on our own time. But I just don't know how one group of doctors can speak for all groups of doctors. So I think that 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 is a that is an accurate summary of what you were trying to say. Um, and I think that, that there's some distinctions here that people are missing. One distinction is you are not opposed to any citizen voicing their constitutional power to say that I believe in X, Y, or Z. You support that. You are not opposed to medicine acknowledging that social determinants of health play profound importance. In fact, maybe even be more important than a lot of what we do. In fact, you've written so much about that. That you know, That's part of people who follow your writing, you should know that you've written a lot about that, about the sort of long-term you know, atrial fibrillation, just for example, how you could try to cure it with a catheter, or you could cure it with you know, a, a society that gives people proper nutrition and exercise. That's something you're passionate about. So, I mean, you believe that, of course, these illnesses are driven by, by social and economic problems. What you're saying is, actu- is, is, is something in between, which is that if a doctor wants to wear the doctor card, the badge of a doctor, then they're fine to say that this badge entitles me to tell you that, you know, lisinopril is good for high blood pressure. But the badge is not the right badge that gives you extra knowledge to say that I believe a a single-payer healthcare system is the best system, or I believe that we should have a public option in a marketplace. That's another version of the problem. Um, The badge doesn't help you answer that question. And in fact, if you're perfectly honest, you didn't learn shit in medical school that actually helps you answer that question. That's a very tricky policy question. You want to answer that question properly from a policy? You got to study. You got to learn some new skills. And it's not a doctor badge you need to hold. You got to hold a policy person badge, right? Right. Right. So, exactly. Go ahead. No, I guess I, I guess that was what the article I think was meant to convey the sense that if one wishes to use the doctor credential, one should realize that sometimes that credential does not give you special insight in political processes. And yet to someone who doesn't know better, it's like the classic sort of joke, the doctor at the dinner party. You go to a dinner party and there's one doctor there. That doctor happens to know everything about English language and literature. They have to know everything about television and movies, and they're the political expert. Because doctors, you know, it's just sort of that, the persona of a doctor that I know better than you in every discipline, which is not true, of course. And, and, and that was what really what you, what you were trying to convey. Right. I mean, I guess the other example is if, let's say, let's say I... I was struck by these social determinants of health, which I am, and and I, I you know, I, I I'm bothered by it, and I go to Frankfurt, the capital of Kentucky, and I talk to my congressman, and I say, hey, or, or congresswoman, I say, look, you know, we really got to do something about this poverty in in this part of the city. It's just tearing people up. There, yeah. There's higher incidence of heart disease, kidney disease all this business. And the, the politician would be like, yeah, okay, doc, I, I, I sort of know that. What, what other ideas do you have? And well, there, there, I think we can, we can have a debate. And I think reasonable people can, reasonable people can make arguments for any different kinds of policy solutions. But I, I don't really think there is one that a, that a medical doctor can, should ascribe to. I mean, I just, I just don't. 
I think um, I, I personally like the example of let's say we decide that the political goal is to provide health care for everybody that's affordable. That's the political goal. I actually think politicians should run on political goals and they shouldn't run on policies because frankly, they don't know shit about how to get things done actually. And they're not experts in that. So they say the political goals, I want everyone to have health care and I want it to be, have access to health care and have it be affordable. That's the goal. Um, then the answer is, well, what's the best way to get there? And one answer right. is Medicare for all. And Medicare for all has advantages. It would lower the percentage of, of money as percent spent on administrative costs. But it also has disadvantages. One of the major disadvantages is if there is a fraction of people in a society that is dissatisfied with their health care, not because of what they're getting, but because we know there's some people, no matter what you do, they're not going to be well. They're all, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be sick because, you know, we can't cure everything. And so there's going to be a right. fraction of people dissatisfied. If you had a single payer system and there was really no private insurance, then they would take out all their anger on the single payer. They couldn't switch. They would feel frustrated and they would feel like they were living in sort of maybe even a, a tyrannical place. Um, so, so that's a disadvantage. Uh, the other pol policy way would be a public option where you can buy into it. Um, that would have many of the advantages. Um, it would also stimulate competition, but you could also switch out of it. Um, and that might have uh, make people feel better, the people who are, are not going to be satisfied. Anyway, I actually don't know the answer to the question. It's a policy question. It's an empirical question. It's not a question of values. It's not a question you study in medical school. It's an empirical question that we should all have a bit more humility about. Um, and, and I think that one of the challenges is that when we confuse political goals with policies to get us there, um, I think that's a, that's a problem not just in medicine but also in politics, I think, that you see politicians running on, you know, how to get you there. And some of those things are wrong. They actually don't get you there. They, in fact, some of them take you the other direction. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And the irony of this whole... <laughs> Uh, you know, Bruja is that I'm I'm completely for a, a universal healthcare system. <laughs> I, I know I mean, you are, <laughs> I, and I've I've written articles. I've written articles about like my personal views are that we should build more parks rather than cath labs. And yes, I, I think yes. what the way our American healthcare system is just it's really a moral. I mean, it, it's immoral. I I just hate the way there's inequity in our system and you know i visited canadian ep labs i visited hospitals in in scotland and the nhs and and i really lean strongly towards a canadian or uh, uk system uh, i've been to poland and their system is very similar it's cost constrained but the the thing of it is is those are hard, hard policy questions that require a nuanced discussion about trade-offs. Yes. I mean, you and your, you and your, 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 your colleagues, cancer drugs. I mean, how would they, yes. how would they work in yes. a in a cost-constrained system? I yeah. mean, there would be trade-offs. Be trade-offs. Yeah, I, I think there'd be trade-offs. I think that actually, well, we could talk about that for a long time. But I mean, I think the entire marketplace would be put on its head and actually the whole pipeline will be reversed. But one of the things that you got in response to your position, you know, and I guess the other thing is, I mean, I, I, maybe there's some people who can eloquently argue why they would disagree with you and why they think medicine should be more political. Perhaps, I mean, I think that's fair to say. Um, there could be such a person who would argue with you. And I think you would have been happy to argue, and you did argue, I think, with some people who argue in good faith. But, but, some people went a bit beyond they said that you appear to be a white man. I don't know for sure, John, but you appear that way to me. Um, and you're from Kentucky. And so they said you're a white supremacist, actually. I saw that in your, you may not have even seen it. You don't look through all the hate. Um, 
I don't know. I guess that troubles me a little bit. It troubles me that, that even if one were to disagree with you, that one would feel no, no hesitation in calling you potentially one of the worst things you could call somebody. For the record, you're not a white supremacist. Is that fair to say, Dr. John Mandrell? No. Not? Yes, I will. I will. I will disown that. That is not. Yes, that is not yeah, representative. A, it is an inaccurate characterization of. John I am Mandrell. a white male, and I just can't do anything about it. Gosh darn it! Yeah, right. You can't do anything about it. Uh, um, but um, you certainly do not espouse any beliefs. In fact, you probably are in staunch opposition to anybody who would espouse any such beliefs, and that's consistent with everything you've ever said and ever done in your entire life. And yet, yes. on Twitter, I mean, people would call, I mean, I, I, it's astonishing to me. They don't know you. They'll call you that. Um, there's another example. You tweeted something, and I actually forget what it was, but somebody called you an em total embarrassment. I don't know to who you're actually embarrassing. Maybe your spouse, yeah. I, I, I don't know, but you would be a total embarrassment. And, and they call you some other tough names. I guess I'm wondering, is it okay to call you th these things because you're a white man? I mean, as, you know, are people going a little harder on you uh, on, me, on social media that, you know, I, I don't think they would say it about me because I'm not a white man. Um, uh, but, you know, but people have called me names too. Um, I guess I guess I wonder what makes somebody comfortable with calling somebody such a thing. Yeah, Thoughts? it's you know a couple comments. One is that I look at I look at Twitter as, and I I I even started started my podcast today with it that I really don't think social media is a good representative sample. It's almost like. It's almost like a, just a skewed sample, um, and I, I just think it brings out the worst in people. I, I, I like to think that if those people were in my hospital, if we were working together and they called me up for a consult or we were taking care of patients together, that we would, we would get on fine. And there's just something about this medium that allows that. A second comment is, as a writer, um, if you're not getting called an embarrassment or an abomination, I don't think you're doing it right. I mean, that's that's how I really got some traction. I, I wrote for a couple of years and didn't really get much traction. And then I, I wrote about how the Iron Man might not be heart healthy. And the Iron Man community just called me a total abomination and embarrassment. And then, you know, I was I was struck by it. But now, I mean, and what was the argument there? It's because it's too much exertion, I, I, too much exertion. Yeah, yeah. yeah because there's there's some observational yeah, there's right. some observational observational data that shows that like a J excess curve. exercise yeah, right. can actually yeah. right right yeah. so i was struck by it and 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 i and again it's very similar to now i wrote about it not because i have an agenda or because i have an answer i'm struck by things that are curious and nuanced and you know i've been in medicine 24 years and so if you do af ablation and all you're doing is isolating pulmonary veins, life gets a little boring. So you're always looking for nuanced, interesting things. And that's what, that's, you know, topics like that interest me. So I, I don't really take it personally that someone calls me an embarrassment. I, I've learned to, I think it's an, it's just a good thing to ignore and consider it not a representative sample. Um, and I will engage with people who uh, are arguing in good faith yeah. because it's, 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 it's worth it to a point. 
Yeah, I agree. And I've seen you do that. And I guess I say now now I remember why you were called an uh, embarrassment. It was because you took the view that doing a study, you know, one of the things people who don't wear masks say, one of the many things they say is that it will lower your O2 sat. They also say you'll retain CO2. They also say, you know, a million things. And then they did a study to show that it did not lower your O2 sat. But of course, this required real people, real work, real effort. It was published in JAMA. You know, uh, I would say that, and you know, you and I both felt similar. This was a stupid project, a stupid question. You can't, you can't fight crazy. You can't fight crazy with science. They're crazy people. They're going to say crazy things till the, the end of time. We cannot find every crazy thing some crazy person says and debunk it with a scientific study because you know what? We got shit to do. We have an agenda to run. We have real problems in our field. We can't go find the craziest person amongst us and have them set the research agenda. And that's all you said. And you were labeled, labeled a total embarrassment for pointing out that we live in a world with finite amount of energy and we can't fight the craziest person. We got to work on the problems we really have yeah it's it's exactly the same as how i got in trouble for the social determinants i'm totally thinking (laughs) social determinants are important and i feel the same way about masks i'm like masks are fine we should be wearing them it's not a hill to die on it's fine but my problem is that when we when we we try and browbeat people with false empiricism. It just comes back to bite us in the butt. Of don't course. use something. Don't use something that's that's just a crappy, worthless study um, to 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 try and influence people. Because then, when something really important comes out, you got you'll no want people to have trust yeah. in your adjudication, your impartiality. And and when you just publish. You know, that mask study, I don't want the authors to be mad at me and, and it, you know, okay, I, I'm not personally attacking them. I, I understand why they did it, but, you know, JAMA is going to have to publish some important work. And when they have that, they, it clearly shows that they have an agenda that they want to, uh, you know, persuade people to wear masks. The, the right way to persuade people to wear masks is just to try and persuade them on on the grounds of the precautionary principle, not that it's going to change your O2SAT. Come on. Come on. I think that that was a total failure. And, and the other thing you're alluding to that I think was a total failure was that study that I, I talk about in this week's monologue, which should be coming out just minutes, minutes from now. I said, you know, it was like the y-axis was like the percent of people who know someone who had COVID and the x-axis was like the percent of mask use in your state. And each dot was a state and there's like a regression line. And then like Atul Gawande and Topol and all these people are tweeting it. And I was like, you know, the moment you tweet that, Everybody who actually does research has got to wonder if you understand research, um, because that's a piece. That's a that is the worst data I've ever seen in my life. And if it it was the if it was the exact same graph that said hydroxychloroquine works, you wouldn't have tweeted it. So what you're really saying is that you are, I guess, your ability to interpret data is is so broken, or you're willing to accept garbage data that supports your that supports your policy view and and try to bamboozle people i mean either one is a deeply unflattering portrait um so wh- i don't understand why p- anyone who ha- who can want to look at themselves in the mirror would tweet that garbage but they did yeah i really you know you've kind of taught me this i I'm, i was struck one time by um i got on this tact of i got on this tact of using scary stories to 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 help make my case and and it, it's pretty effective actually oh, yeah. scary scary mm-hmm. stories are, are are great for for persuasion but then i heard you i can't remember if it was a podcast or a written article or whatever you just kind of um 
said that that's not the way we should persuade because yeah, that just like is, 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 um, you know, we should be above that. We should be more empirical than that. And, and, um, so I, I, I think it's similar to the, similar to these, what, what Robert, Bobby Yeh calls howler studies. I mean, mm-hmm. the howler studies are counterproductive because yeah. they, they really, they, they lessen our, our, you know, our, I guess our stance as, as, as judges and experts. And, and I, you know, look, lack of trust in science is complicated and multifact, multifactorial. Um, but I really think that, um, I really think that having a political agenda and publishing things that are really not very good studies because they fit a narrative is just crushing. It's, crushing po- it's poison. It's poison. And I, I still, I totally agree with that because I, I, I if you want, if you if you believe in if you believe in science and you want to persuade people, you got to use the best data. And you know, it's it's just it's just so natural, of course, to use the worst anecdote. I have a bunch of bad anecdotes. I keep them to my damn self, and I try to win the case on the data. But here's what I'm getting to. Uh, the reason I had this prelude. Here's my my thesis. Um, I would say that my my view of the situation would suggest to me that the current incumbent president is perhaps the worst president we've had in the history of the republic he's a guy who's mismanaged a pandemic cost trillions of dollars in the economy cost hundreds of thousands of lives um through mismanagement um he's somebody who's separated kids from from parents and put them in cages and and they can't even find the parents which i think is a human rights violation potentially this sort of thing should be in the international criminal court um he's the kind of person who's done i, I don't even know where to start i mean on every policy front it's the worst the worst thing you can imagine um and and we ran we ran this guy against him this this guy who's a pretty decent guy and it should have been a blowout it should have been 400 electoral votes it should have been a, a huge blowout but it's not a blowout it's friday and they're still counting and it's 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 on the razor's edge we've lost seats in the house we're probably not going to go hold the senate um it, and in this country if you really don't have all those three you know your agenda is deeply limited um I want to draw a line between a couple of things. Why didn't why didn't the Democrats do better? And I wonder if it's somehow a little bit related to some of the things that you have been cautioning um, about, which is that if you want to go around and call John Mandrola a white supremacist for having a point of view that is you know, maybe different than your point of view, but I, I think a perfectly reasonable point of view, a point of view that we ought to engage with. If you want to call John Mandrola, John Mandrola, universal healthcare John Mandrola, a total embarrassment for pointing out that maybe we shouldn't have done a different research study. Um, you're going to, you're really, you're, you're going to drive a lot of people away. You're going to make a lot of people not like what you're selling. Because you seem like a really intolerant person who's not willing to have a discussion with someone who may think differently. And the people who are doing that are also every other tweet tweeting, vote for Biden, wear a mask, wear a mask, you idiot, vote for Biden. Trump is bad. You know, 
I said that I don't, you know, I disagree with politics here, but I almost never tweet about the guy. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to tweet about him. I almost, I don't think I've ever tweeted support Joe Biden. I mean, we don't, you and I, our feeds don't include naked politics. So if you want to create a Twitter feed and the whole feed is going to be Biden, vote for Biden. If you vote for Trump, you're a racist. Um, Mandrola, if you, if you, you know, Mandrola, if he says that a doctor should become a, a Biden supporter, good. But if Mandrola says a doctor should keep politics a little bit away from medicine, he's a white supremacist. If you want to polarize the world in this way, then don't be surprised when at the end of the day, nobody wants to be in your tent, even though you're running against the worst guy in the history of the Republic. Thoughts? Yeah, I I, uh, I have many thoughts. I mean, I... I, I agree. I agree that Donald Trump is just a, um, he's just a, a, I mean, he's a con man and, and he's shyster and, and, and he's and those, terrible. And those are the good qualities. <laughs> and, and it's just, you know, what he's done to destroy, what he's done to destroy norms and to in, enhance the polarization is just terrible. Um, the irony of the irony of me being attacked is is I you know at at work a couple of my partners call me the liberal because <laughs> you, know, you are a liberal I, to some degree. I, I voted yeah. for I voted for you know I voted for Obama because I thought he was the next JFK and and I voted for Clinton and I mean yeah so I just look my view of America is pretty is is pretty old fashioned. I I really think that we're great because you know we're the United States and. The United States does, you know, it, it, it's not just the coast and it's not just uh, us people in academia who know the right words to speak. I mean, there are kind and generous and, and wonderful people in, in, you know, in flyover country. These are the patients that I take care of. And, you know, that's, I don't know, is it 48%, 45% of the people? It's, it's a lot of people. And, and that it was this close um, really speaks to something that the Democrats are not doing and uh, I or, guess it, or, or you know, are doing or are doing yeah I mean I, okay one quick story when I was growing up in northern Connecticut my grandfather he worked he worked in factories all his life he worked in royal typewriter and he worked in cult firearms and he would always fight with my dad my dad was a Republican and you know back in those days the Democrats were for the working people they were yeah, for they, yeah, they were yeah. for the you know the factory workers and now it, it really seems like the Democrats take for great I mean they, they've sort of abandoned that and become these coastal elites and and and, and really illiberal and I know the the right can be illiberal too I, I know that I mean but the, the illiberalism in the left really bothers me because they should know better. Yeah. And, and I mean, I guess that's, I guess it's, it's what they don't do. And, and some of the scary things about, you know, if you're calling, okay, these anti-racist thing, if you're, if you're, if you're not an anti-racist, you're a racist. Well then what are you going to call real racism? I mean, that's the problem because uh, it's very complicated, but I, I hope that what I what I hope that happens is that that and I'm I'm optimistic seriously that this is going to calm down. The, the, that I'm I'm kind of hoping for a mixed government, um, so that there has to be compromise because I think that's what the founding fathers wanted. That's what's made America so successful. Um, but even if there isn't, there'll be another election in two years, and the people can speak, and and that's how it's supposed to work. I guess I applaud your optimism. That's for one. Um, <laughs> I, I like you am more concerned with the illiberalism amongst 
left-leaning scholars, particularly in, in places of higher education, where you ought to be exposed to ideas that make you squirm in your seat so you can create the mental fortitude to figure out how to take someone who holds such an idea and show them why they're wrong. That's a skill. And if you're not willing to be uncomfortable with the idea, you will never learn how to take someone who holds it strongly and get them to flip their thinking. And every, every paper I've done, maybe not every tweet, because like everyone else, I'm subject to the same passions and I can tweet in the heat of the moment, but every paper I've ever done that seeks to advance a way of thinking around a topic has always aimed for the swing voter. You know, I'm always thinking, look, I believe in, I see reversals every day, but these people, they don't see it. How can I show them that? So I try to do this for frequency reversal. I think these cancer drugs don't work so good, but they seem to think they're great. Well, am I crazy or are they crazy? Well, then I try to do this pen paper, say like, well, look at all the drugs, look how, you know, they're not so good. And then sometimes every once in a while you win, you don't even know you win. Cause I, I think that the genomic cancer drugs are overrated. And so I publish a paper saying that, you know, it turns out only helps 8% of people. And the people who used to argue with me and say that they help everybody. Now they come back and say, oh, 8%. Yeah, we always said it was 8%. You know, we never said it was any higher, right? But I persuaded them, right? I persuaded them so deeply. They forgot what they used to say. Well, that's a win for, I'll take the win. Okay. So, so, I mean, what I'm trying to say is this is just a tiny slice of life, which is the space that, you know, you and I have spent a lot of time in, um, medical practices and, 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 and drug approval. And in this space, um, a good skill to have is to empathize with someone who disagrees and think about what piece of data you can provide to flip their mind. This is true in every, for every sort of issue, for every issue that we face as a society. Um, instead what I view as the problem with illiberalism is it doesn't seek to do that. Instead, it seeks by brute force to get them to say, to shut up. You can get them to shut up because you can make a very hostile climate for them to say their point of view, but you don't change their mind. And when they go to the ballot box, boom, 69 million people are throwing that ballot in your face and you're going to have a heart attack, as we saw. Um, when I was critical of that PNAS study, you remember this I got myself into. Well, I got some private advice to lay off it. Um, Which one was that? Remind me. This was the study that I guess first I would say, like my point of view on the issue, I, I believe that there is a profound um, l injustice towards the black community that is rooted in slavery and Jim Crow laws that perpetuated even decades after. And our society has not yet done enough to correct that prior injustice. So I, I believe that very strongly, and and I think that it ought to be addressed through sort of economic policy. Um, this paper was published in the PNAS, and it claimed that a, a black neonate in Florida has a much higher rate of death than a white neonate, and that is just an absolute fact. That's an absolute fact, and is a yes. se sequela of this, of these, you know, hundreds of years of inequity. It's a sequela of all that. And the paper showed that if a white doctor could took care of the black baby at a certain rate of demise, and if a black doctor took care of it, that rate was reduced by some unbelievable proportion that cannot possibly be true. And then the more you pull at that paper, you realize that they didn't code the, the way the data is coded is a disaster. The attribution to doctor doesn't make any sense. Yes. Uh, you know, it's thoroughly 
I, I, I'm going to have to shy away from how I would describe the paper, but I believe there are a number of limitations to the paper for the conclusion. And in fact, if you are someone who holds my point of view, that the legacy of slavery has this inertia that we have not yet overcome, this paper is a disservice to the cause. It's a disservice because it suggests that 40% of that all that bad stuff that happened can be undone if the patient looks in the face of the doctor and sees a black face. It suggests that that is, can undo 40% of all that damage. That is a disservice to the extent of the damage, if you ask me. Okay, so I think it's actually, it's a paper that one, is scientifically inaccurate, which is my number one objection. Two, it's a disservice to the cause, and they don't even, and you know, people who should be championing progressive values, as I do, I'm a progressive, um, they don't want to uh, acknowledge that. Anyway, so then I pointed out that the paper has limitations, and of course I got a, a great deal of pushback. And I think somebody sent me a tweet where I think somebody was talking about me and they called me a, a white aligned person of color, PLC. I'm a white aligned. You're a supremacist. I'm merely white aligned. I don't even know what that means because, because I don't view the world. You know, I, I treat people the same. I treat people the same with a lot of respect, whether what, what country they're from, what, who they love and, and how they look. I treat them the same. And so I found it really deeply hurtful. It's also personal. I'm talking about a paper in a technical way and you want to make it about me and what I look like. Uh, and then I think the people who will do that, you will destroy this. You will destroy the left. You will destroy the left. I'm the one who's saving the left because I'm the one who's willing to tell you that this paper doesn't prove what you think. All right, Mandrella, what do you say? Oh, come on. That, that, first of all, um, I didn't know what journal that paper was published in, but that your, your take on that paper really... It, it, it influenced me, uh, I would say, two, two, two ways. One is, I think the most important thing you said in that podcast about that paper is, you don't need to make this empirical. It's the same thing as the masks. You, you don't need an empirical argument for diversity. Diversity is good in and of itself. It's, it's to, try and, to try and use some really flawed, terrible science. I mean, come on, that was just... It's just crazy how bad that paper was. The confounders and all that business. And, and anybody who's in the hospital knows that one doctor right, doesn't influence exactly, somebody's care. Exactly. Okay. I know. But that's none of that's the point. The point is that diversity is is good in and of itself. Right, and right. and and to to use this false empiricism is just it's it's like you say it's poisonous and it's terrible. And as far as discussing it. You you persuaded me, and um, uh, you know young people young people need uh, people with more armor to to like you say armor to to express these views because people are afraid and so I mean I, I just think it's kind of our role as as I, I don't know I'm not hardly an intellectual but as a public thinker it's our role to take on these difficult. These difficult things. You did it with the Norman Wang paper. I mean, I, I think that's a classic example of where the the the, the progressive-minded people hurt themselves because you know Norman Wang made a, a, a an argument that that many people consider, and, and some African American people consider yes. that argument. And then as soon as it gets discovered, it's canceled and he's he's called a racist. Well, I don't know Norman Wang from Adam, but I mean, we can't do that. That defeats the cause. It, it, it hurts the cause. So I, I, I just think that we have to have these conversations. And if people push back, OK, we just we have to take it. 
He's called a racist. His papers retracted in violation of any norm I'm familiar with. He's no longer EP fellowship director, and I hear he's not allowed to work with trainees because he creates an unsafe work environment. You know, and that this is another irony that I'm even scared to talk to you about this. But, but you know, uh, I've written before and I've discussed on my podcast that I strongly believe that we need to have more um, minority people in in medicine, if nothing else, as mentors. I mean. Look at what's happening with women, women in medicine, women have more women mentors and we're going to have more women doctors, uh, half my cardiology, no, no, not half, but 45% are women because there's mentorship. So it's a good thing to have more people of color in medicine. And but how to get there again, how to get there is an argument we can have and we ought to be able to have without being called a racist. I actually, and the irony is the whole thing is like, I really disagree with Norman Wang and I'm going to get a legal scholar. She's from University of Michigan and she's really sharp. And, and, I, I, and I'm, I'm bringing her on because I think she's going to be a really good and eloquent spokesperson for why the legal case that the Civil Rights Amendment prevents institutions that receive federal money from considering race in this way to compensate for past injustice um, is wrong, that it does not, in fact, preclude that, um, and that universities should be free to do that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring her on because I think she'll articulate it better than I could. But we have shifted the entire discussion from the merits of what he was saying to whether or not he should be treated this way. And that doesn't help the cause either. It's a distraction. It's a distraction from the discussion to make it about him. I don't want to talk about him. Just let him be and tell me what's wrong with his paper. That would have been a better strategy. Oh, it would have been a wonderful strategy if they if they could have published just a, a rebuttal of a, a line by line or paragraph by paragraph rebuttal of 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 his points, and and come to a different conclusion. We could have had we could have had a, a extreme learning experience. Okay, another example. Look at RBG um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anton Scalia. They see everything opposite, but yet they're best of friends. Yeah. And I've listened to the videos and, and lectures from them. Uh, their different takes on things is so. I mean, it's so educational. And if we had this, we we can advance the cause. And ah, gosh, I mean, it's it's such a lost opportunity to just to say, uh, just to to retract it. It's that's such a strong. It's such a strong, it's just way too big of a hammer. You live in Kentucky. I was born in Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. And I have lived in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Indiana. That's, those are the states I've lived in. And I know all the people there. And I will tell you that, you know, 50% of them are not racist, I think. I do not believe that they are. Um, there are some people who are, and I've encountered a, a bit of it in my life and, and my father encountered some and my mother encountered some too. Um, and, um, but, but it's not, it's not the majority. It's, it's a, it's a tiny, a tiny fraction of people. And, um, I, I, I don't think we help anything. If you want to say that 50% of people in those States are racist, I think you, you, you abuse the term to the point it has lost its value. I also think that these this sort of persistent call i hear that we ought to abolish the electoral college or something i'm like okay well you know what um there are certainly some benefits to having a direct popular vote but you know what that's not the way the system is for 200 years it hasn't been that way and one of the reasons it wasn't that way is that the founders 
we're concerned that there could be one single place on, on this country, this big country, that would be very, very populous. And that place could decide what happens everywhere else in the whole country. So a giant California could rule the whole country. And that would feel a lot like being ruled by England, a place that's very far away from where you are. And so a compromise was struck where there's some balance that disperses power based on the geography of the land. Is it perfect? Who knows? But this is the way the way this is the way the world is. This is the rules of the game. So I want to hear less talk of changing the rules of the game and more talk about how you can take all the people in these states that Obama won and get them to vote for you again. It's not that hard. You have to have the right message. And I think that if the message is going to be that Dr. John Mandrell is a white supremacist, I don't think that's going to go over so well. If the message is, we know you're hurting economically and we have policies, we have ideas to help you get food on the table and get to work because we know the value and virtue of work, I think you got a better shot. So thoughts on that? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, America's not perfect. We 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 are definitely a flawed country and we have a you know, we have plenty of flaws, but it's been working for for a long time. And um I'm not a I mean I I feel funny speaking about the electoral college because I'm not really a history or political science person, but it's like in medicine something's been working pretty well. For a long time, I mean, it, it just seems it seems wise to to, to not change it uh, unless you have really strong evidence. The other thing I guess I would say is, if you want to change the the electoral college, you know, persuade the people that yeah, that's right. the right way. I mean, and and it's persuasion. It's not just you know by brute by brute power. I I, I really think that would be I really think that would be a problem. I but I, I also agree that the electoral college has its imperfections for sure. Yeah. I mean, no system is perfect. I mean, even in a place like India, Modi is basically controls everything with 32% of the vote. You know, every system, every system has, every system has a compromise. There, every, there's, there's not a perfect political system. Um, I just think that it's, I don't, a, I don't know. Uh, Canada seems, every time I go to Canada, it seems pretty, pretty perfect. <laughs> Harmonious. Like the, the people are, yeah, the people are, you know, well behaved and seem happy. And I guess, I don't know, maybe it's, uh, it's just, yeah. So it's, I'm, I'm really in awe of, of uh, uh, Canada. Uh, I, 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 you know, I love America. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. Canadians seem very well adjusted. Well, I'm always jealous of them a little bit, especially, especially when I go visit. But, um, I guess I, I feel uh, a certain loyalty to, to this country, and I think it can be it can be it can, it, it has it has all the potential it's it ha, it it once had. It, it can be regained, and and these elections don't have to go this way. We've been talking about you know these issues, which I think are so interesting. Um, when I look on Twitter, I see a number of every day I see tweets that I want to put a little a sticker note on, say. This is not how you do it. Not how you do it. So some examples. Um, Mask saves lives. If you don't wear masks, you're killing people. Dummy. You idiot. You know, how stupid are you that you don't wear a mask? The science says, science says, mask saves, science says. Sciences. Oh, like that, uh, the cluster randomized trial that showed that um, uh, for SARS-CoV-2, uh, in a world with SARS-CoV-2, there was that cluster randomized trial um, in Europe, which randomized uh, counties, um, and it found that masks reduce the risk of transmission by uh, absolute risk reduction of uh, point 
0.012 percent. Um, that that study. Oh, 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 there's no such study. Okay, there's no such. Study. Yeah, there's no such study. Why don't we just acknowledge there's just not that perfect study? That said, it's a reasonable thing to do. It, you know, I think the better messaging would have just been, you know, you if you want to get this, if you want to get the, if you want to get back to work, just wear this and shut up, and we can get back to work. You know, we can get back to getting the engine of the economy going. That would have been a better message. I think another better message would be stop whining. Just wear it. It's not a big deal. You know, it's just not a big deal. Don't let's not make it a big deal. Let's not talk about. It. Just do it. Um, but that's not the message. The message is um, what was the message? The message is um, well, the original message was when Fauci was on 60 Minutes was don't wear a mask. You could touch your face too much and it, it will negate the benefit. But then just a little bit later, the message switched 100, it switched obviously that that was the wrong message. Um, and we were of course only saying that because we wanted to conserve masks. That's why we said it, but we said it rather convincingly if you watch the video, but okay, fine. All right, it was just to conserve the mask. Um, then the new message is that my mask protects you. It doesn't protect me. Um, of course, that's mostly uh, quasi-experimental and theoretical basis for that. There's not a cluster randomized trial that's ever shown that that to be the case, but that's okay. Um, but then the new message is, of course, masks may protect me to some degree um, by getting a lower inoculum dose. Uh, but of course, that message has been labeled by some mask proponents as dangerous. Um, this, is, this is a disaster that would have been solved with just some brutal honesty, which is, look, buddy, we don't got the perfect study. All this data, it's flawed, it's circumstantial, it's not the perfect data. I can't say for sure, but let's just do it. Let's shut up about it and do it. We got to do, we got to suck up and do some things. The alternative is these, these people might want to close everything down. Let's just put this on. Let's get out there. Let's go do some stuff. That, that's, that's the America I know. You just say that and people will be on board. Completely. I think this is why, I mean, I remember growing up and I think Ronald, Ronald Reagan was a master of this. I mean, he just, he was persuasive and he was, he had a, he had really a kind, humble spirit about him. And I, I think this, you know, the worst thing we can do is use crappy studies to persuade. But the second worst thing we can do is be mean about it. I mean, I just think meanness is so unpersuasive and so divisive. It just doesn't work. And I, I read some people with really good arguments and really good skepticisms who are just mean and, and just that doesn't work. Um, cause people don't, people don't respond to that. Yeah. And, I, I think I think it's just wrong. Um, so I, I'm not for it. I, I'm uh, I just try. You know the funny thing that I about Twitter is the more people are mean to me, the more it makes me less mean. I just almost never get aggravated. It almost makes me like I don't know what it is. It's 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 weird. It's like church. I, I it just I just I, I feel like. I see it and I think that is the stupidest way to make an argument and you're just, <laughs> you're just, you're just, you're just hurting yourself. And so I, I, we can't interact with all these people. You can't change the world by interacting with everybody on Twitter. All you can do is try and make the best case for persuasiveness. You know, it's funny because you, uh, you really do it nicely, which is that they, they punch you and then you just go super nice back and then they punch one more time, super nice back. And then people watch it and they're just like, come on, man, Mandrill is a good guy. You know, you're totally out of line. And it, it just flips the whole audience to your side. I mean, it is a, it is, it, you're just crushing them with kindness. Um, um, and they reveal themselves to be fools because like, oh, why are they getting you so mad at you for having this, you know, middle of the road opinion? Yeah. 
Yeah, I get plenty mad at certain things. I mean, I'm not known for my calmness at right, work, and, and I get aggravated pretty easy. But for whatever reason, when it, when I see that and they're uh, they're attacking me, I, I just I don't I don't feel like it's 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 worth responding. I think the the, fo- the forum has changed a lot in the last five years. I mean, I remember five years ago, I I found it more fun. It was more fun. It was less judgy. It was less shame or the goal you know the the fewer people cruising for the daily dose of shaming someone the daily dose of outrage it was more you know mandrola would say you know we shouldn't be putting in watchmen's and there'd be somebody who's on the take from watchmen saying you ought to put them in and they'd be me saying like oh does everyone really need a vast in and there'd be somebody who's you know stuffing their pockets with Genentech money saying you ought to give more vast it you know it was the good old days the good old days where we'd argue about some drug some device some procedure some screening test um and there was a little back and forth there was a little bit of you know it was it wasn't it was there's a little meanness there but you know it was it was nine verse two two verse seven you know those that kind of like little playground playground um playground uh spat um and then it would end and then you know people forget a little bit and it, it felt it felt ephemeral it felt um it felt like not real it felt like the internet um and now it's um you know ten thousand people think um think some paper in vascular surgery journal is um oh. is a, 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 a sort of a misogynistic paper and and that the first author maybe maybe he should kill himself i mean i don't know i mean they keep they keep taunting him like that with 300 things in his thread and you know i don't know what they want him to do he's apologized but it's not a, of course an apology on the internet is never never i you know the day there's a good apology on the internet you know you're gonna have to we're gonna have to halt the presses it'll be like a solar eclipse or something i mean it's never a perfect apology on the internet um you know it's just this it's just the sea of like what's the newest thing to mob about the newest thing to be outraged about um it's not the same and and, and it's not and you know every single person who i know from like five years ago used to like it like Ch- you know i was talking to chadi recently he you, you know you you and i were, were talking to chadi and you know he he, he it doesn't have his heart in it the same way sarab jaw doesn't have his heart in it the same way and a lot of people don't have it it's just it's it, it's it's cooled i mean it's not the same well it isn't the same things change and and i i agree that i agree that it's that it has it, it's not a good platform for arguing and there is mob twitter and that's a negative but i still i still find it just you know enthralling because i follow a super left people and super right people and and i i literally have the same number of them and i and i read you know, I read Jeet here and, you know, I read Barry Weiss and I, uh, you know, I just read Scott Adams and I just, you know, I read both sides and um, I think it's just, it's really fun that way. Um, as far as, and as far as medicine, there's still good, you know, there's still good things in medicine coming out of it. But here's the, here's the, I think it's not, you can't just use Twitter. And this is where it used to be back in the day. It was the blogs, right? We could write blogs. We could write blogs. But now no one reads. Uh, so now it's podcasts and it's long-form podcasting. And I may be wrong about this, but I think long-form podcasting allows these more nuanced conversations and really, I think, stand a chance to save us uh, in terms of, you know, uh, bridging some of these gaps and i mean look at joe rogan i mean joe rogan i think he i listened to a podcast the other day he said he he told somebody he had a hundred million downloads a month really? i mean Jeez. you know uh eric weinstein i mean there's just people having these long conversations that are i think amazing and 
Um, so I'm a big fan of long form podcasting, but I'm also a fan of Twitter for what it is, but I'm not fantasizing about what it was because it's definitely different. It's definitely different. And, um, well, you know, you listen to Rogan then. So Rogan has said many times that he, he, uh, he does not, he does not look at Twitter. It's a dumpster fire. Um, he had that recently had a discuss into, I listened to three hour discussion about, um, the way social media companies are trying to hijack your attention. Um, which is the basis yeah. of the documentary on on Netflix. Um, but, you know, in some quarters, you might even be branded a supremacist for acknowledging that you listen to that podcast occasionally. Yeah, but I mean, Rogan's a funny character because he has... He's he he has um, you know left sided left you know, I guess left leaning political views, but but is uh, you know not culturally in line with people. I mean he, and so uh, I don't know. I'm not saying that Joe Rogan is you know the best or whatever, but I listen to him. I don't listen to every single one, but I mean I think he really he has. He doesn't have a hundred million downloads a month for nothing. I mean, he has people on there, and he, he's not afraid to say certain things. And um, yeah, so I listen to a lot of different. I listen to left and I listen to uh, right podcasts. It's it's. I think it's the way to go. I listen to some Joe Rogan, but always by by accident. <laughs> no, but that's what um, President Trump says about Bill Maher show. He always says, he always says, he said, I, uh, I saw this comedian Bill Maher by accident. He's like, how do you watch my show every week by accident? <laughs> Somebody had it on, you just keep watching it. <laughs> but, um, but I listen to Joe Rogan a lot. And I think that, um, and I've also listened to the criticism and I've definitely listened to some episodes where I want to, I want to strangle Joe. Um, I've also listened to some episodes where I, I, I wanted to give him a, a prize. Um, and, and why do I feel that way? I mean, I think he's somebody who is not easily put in a box. His views are not easily captured in a box. I mean, I think people can inappropriately put him in a box, but not, he's not easily sort of captured. He's not certainly not part of the culture of the left. He certainly has a lot of political views that align with the left. Um, and, but what I find him to be really good at is every once in a while he has a guest on where he just doesn't know anything about that space. Like it could be Brian Green and planetary things. It could be Neil deGrasse Tyson and, you know, astrophysics or I don't know, whatever. Something he just doesn't know anything about. And he, I swear to God, this guy asks like just earnest questions trying to figure out like what's going on. And he's a damn, he's damn good at it. He's damn good at just, just being an earnest questioner. Um, and, and that's why you can watch, listen for three hours and learn a lot. Right, right. It's like... It's like he's a, you know, he, he just sort of, uh, Tyler Cowen has this too. Yeah. I mean, he just is, is interested in everything and, um, not an ex, maybe not an expert in anything, but, it, but really, yeah. And I love the curiosity and I, I agree. It's almost like he's a, it's almost like B students make better teachers because if you're an A student, you understand everything so perfectly well. And he's just trying to understand it on his level. And I think it's, I think that's what, you know, he's on a level that a lot of people are on. And, uh, yeah, so, I, I mean, the guy had Bernie Sanders on. Yeah. Come on, he, I think he, didn't he, didn't he endorse he Bernie, Bernie Sanders? Bernie. Yeah, he endorsed Bernie. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah. I mean, how can you call him, like, uh, right but, wing if he's yeah, endorsing Bernie? Right it's just, yeah. it's not consistent. Yeah, I, I think it was Blaise Pascal said um, that, that, Thinking, thinking, you know, thinking clearly was, uh, was basically all like a morality. Like right thinking is is what we have, and that I guess that's what that's what I shoot for. Hmm. That Hitchens, is, I think too. Yes. You know, Hitchens, 
Hitchens always said uh, that there was time time spent in argument is almost never time spent wasted. And so, I mean, there's just value in this, and we ought to be able to have these discussions. What Pascal's quote was great. He said, all of our dignity consists in thought. It is by this that we must raise ourselves up. Let us work, therefore, to think well, for such is the principle of morality. I mean, that is just, to me, it's just classic. We just, all of our dignity consists in thought. And, I mean, this is what we need more of, and this is why I write and why I podcast and why I'm engaged, is that I don't have the answers, but gosh, we ought to be able to have a discussion about the pros and cons and benefits and risks and all of this business. Yeah, I mean, that's my view of science, which is that um, if you want to be, if you want to say you're a scientist, I know these days it's fashionable to say, I'm with science, I'm with the scientists. But many of the people who say that, I, they don't meet my definition of scientist. Being a scientist means that you have to call out bad studies, bad methodology, bad reasoning, even if it goes in the direction you like. You got to call it out. And there have been many studies that we, I've personally abandoned, wouldn't put my name on, I didn't want to participate in, if they are not robust. In fact, I, 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 I don't know, I mean, I, I could say it would tarnish my legacy. I don't even know if I have a legacy, because probably like most people, when I die, no one will, no, first, I know what'll happen when I die. When I die, there's just going to be like a um, hundred tweets that say, oh gosh, I always loved him, <laughs> by people who always hated me. <laughs> You know, that, that kind of... Oh, they'll the, probably the, say, the classic they'll bullshit. Probably say the classic you, bullshit. you should have taken that chemo drug, that genomic oh, drug. Yeah. <laughs> that would have that cured him. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so first they'd be that whole, that whole like, oh, I always was a big fan. And it would be like the person who was like my number one enemy and like complaining to my boss about me. Um, so there would be that. And then, of course, like everyone else, I would just be quickly forgotten, which is the fate of most people. Um, that said, uh, even though I would be quickly forgotten... I, 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 I would, would, would not be able to live with myself if I it was the author of serial garbage. I mean, that's just not my view of science. Um, my other view of science is that if our science comms, that's another popular topic these days, because there's a lot of people who are in the science comm business. And they say that, um, what is it? If, if we don't step into this space, who will? Who will go on CNN and tell these people on CNN what's up with COVID in, in one minute? The one-minute summary with no nuance and no trade-offs in about COVID. And I would say that many of the people who are commenting, they um, don't have primary familiarity, familiarity with the data. They are not inserting needed nuance and caveats and, and needed uncertainty. And it's almost always as like, what is the... the um, the the masks du jour what is the the thing we're going to beat on about today um and it's always a new thing uh, more testing today and then we got to do this we got to do that we got to test trace isolate i was like yeah you got to think through that recommendation a bit because it's quite feasible when there are very few cases when there are lots of cases and there is no resource to do that and people don't want to tell you who they talked to or visited it is not so easy to do, is it? It's not so easy to do. And I got really annoyed when I looked at these these memos, these stupid 
memos, I got really annoyed because I'm like, one memo, I thought the Great Barrington, let's be honest, you know, it was, it was, it's a counter memo to the culture. It's a counterculture memo that says, you know, many of you want to lock everything down and keep every school's closed for forever until there's a vaccine. Um, you know, there's a downside to that. In fact, a lot of young people could get this infection and they'd be fine. Um, and then there's the response memo and the response memo was like, well, no, we got to do whatever it takes until keep things shut down and immunity might, immunity might vanish. We don't even know if it'll vanish the next day. It had all these kind of fear mongering about vanishing immunity. Um, and, and, and people faulted the Great Barrington Declaration, and I think even rightly, for not really explaining, like, you know, how do you protect the vulnerable? Are you just going to tell somebody who's like, if you're 45 or 55, what's the cutoff? And you have to go sequester in your bunker? Um, or if you're 40 with diabetes, I mean, is it going to have like a Chad's Two Vask scale? I mean, it's going to have some scale, and the net result is you either go in a bunker or you go party. I mean, is, this, is that how it works? Or like, they didn't have a, they didn't have a fleshed out plan. Fair enough. But the people in the other declaration, they were like, oh, well, we're going to do all these things. And then I'm like, well, you know, there's a lot of poor people who are living like paycheck to paycheck. There's food insecurity. People don't have enough food in 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 the, in the Bay Area, in the in San Francisco area. Their their surveys suggest some people are going hungry. How you going to solve that problem? And they're like, oh, well, economists should come up with a stimulus package. That's just the same. It's just another hand-waving. These people are hand-waving how you protect the, the, the old, and you're just hand-waving how you're going to protect the vulnerable from economic collapse. You, you, it's just hand-waving. That's not an answer. If I'm hungry today and you say economists should work on this, I'm going to be really pissed with you because that's not a really answer for my hunger. So, um, um, uh, I, I forget where I was going with this. I think I was, it, it is to say that many of the people who comment extensively on COVID are living in a fantasy world um, that's disconnected. They're not willing to talk to people who have other points of view, and they're not willing to concede that there are challenges that they haven't thought through in their own little worldview. Thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I it's the same it's the same thing I feel about scientific studies. I think all studies... You know, the abstract ought to have a ought to have a bolded paragraph about the limitations. So everybody can just read the limitations first. It's not bad yeah. for science. You know, we have to respect the null hypothesis. We don't I mean, science this is a hard problem. How to deal with how to deal with COVID is a super hard problem because the virus is terrible. It's it's a you know, it's terrible. It's highly infectious and it it, it affects vulnerable people, but it also every once in a while affects people who aren't so vulnerable. So it's just, it's a terrible virus. I hate it. But, but man, if you, if you see patients who are, you know, not in a city, if you see people like working people like I do, I mean, people are hurting. And, uh, and it, it just, you know, this, the whole San Francisco thing gets to me a little bit because San Francisco's bragging about how great they're doing. Well, I mean, I, I know there's poor people in San Francisco, but yeah. a lot of people in San Francisco have the benefit of just getting on Zoom and working remotely, whereas people in other parts of the country, they're getting hammered. Like, I think it was South Dakota, uh, uh, Wayne Toaster Pastry was tweeting that, you know, South Dakota has a huge meatpacking plant that just can't shut down. You know, you just can't go Zoom and, and have, uh, you know, meat. So... I, I don't know. I just, I think if Fauci, I think if we had a better political environment, a person like Fauci could get up to the podium and he actually, I think, could address some of this nuance and, and, and say, look, we're not really sure about these best practices, but here's, here's our best guess. And you know, the American people, American people would just eat that up, I think, because they just, they really, 
they know people people know that this is a hard problem and and i think they're just many are just repulsed by this binary thinking if you think we should open up schools or we think you know we should whatever you're, you're just a killer i mean that just is that's like calling that's like calling people racist that aren't racist exactly it's just poison. It's poison, and it's self-defeating, and that's why that's why you running against the worst person who's ever done this job in the history of the republic, and you're biting your nails four days later to see if you still won. I mean, you would. That's a part of why. Um, you know, the thing you're talking about, which I'll tell listeners about, which I thought was it was one of those long threads, um, something about you know um, lockdowns and uh, reopening the economy. They're not antagonistic. We can we can have our cake and eat it too. Just look at how San Francisco did. And the more I looked at the thread, I was like, I wanted to bang my head against a wall because I'm like, well, you know, San Francisco, they can't, extra they can't extrapolate from San Francisco. There's a few reasons why. One, it probably has one of the largest workforces that does not have to show up physically for work. Um, two, many of the people who are part of said workforce immediately vacated to go live in their parents' house or their, their other home or whatever. It has tremendous affluence, so much affluence that such a huge chunk of this city can, can pull itself out from circulation. It has a certain type of climate. Who knows to what degree that would contribute? Even asking that question was is once heretical. That you know, I think uh, Stefan Baral he he went on some news show and said that there is seasonality to coronavirus, and he almost got you know his head bit off for saying that um, that that there that 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 is one factor amongst many to explain the circulation of of, of viruses like this. Um, but you know, it has a number of these things that aren't really readily extrapolatable to other places. And and the irony, of course, is that. You know, it's easy for the coastal elite to ask why the meatpacking plant is open in South Dakota while they themselves order meat through Uber Eats to have delivered to their house, which is, you know, a great irony. Um, but um, it is part of some of the tone deaf, I think, um, uh, threads that, that sort of don't seem to appreciate the different circumstances around this country. Um, I was asked by a reporter recently, um, you know, when under what circumstances do I think we should reinstitute lockdowns in the fall? And uh, my answer was, um, <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Because I was like, you know, um, a policy like lockdowns, it certainly has theoretical benefits to slow the spread of the virus, but it has a real downside. And if you do it in a country that is incredibly politically divided, where a lot of people don't want to do it. I think it may blow up in your face <laughs> very badly. Um, and so I would say that sometimes the perfect is the enemy of the good, and you may not be able to do it at all because people are not there. And and certainly when I call my, you know, my high school friends who live in Kentucky, uh, who, I, who I grew up with in Indiana, and I get a sense of how people feel, I'm like, I don't think that's going to go over so well. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, Vinay, I'm just struck by... I don't even think it's just tone deaf. I think that, you know, I, sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder, you know, these people, people who are super smart, sometimes don't show to me that they have any sense of EQ what, or what more than just EQ, but what normal people, yeah, right. uh, normal people think, you know, uh, I, so I, exactly you're exactly right i mean it's a complex thing it's you just you, you know you you just can't say you, you can't treat america like it's new zealand i mean i just don't 
maybe I'll get in trouble for saying that. And New Zealand's great. I mean, uh, they can close their borders and and they they have you know they can just do what we, what they do. And we're a big, rambunctious, diverse, heterogeneous country. And it's you know you gotta. I think I think Steph said it so well. He said public health is about you know about the public health that you can do not the public health you want and it was it's just like medicine i mean i i'd like everybody to take their medicines perfectly i'd like everybody to exercise and eat right and not smoke but you know people do those things and I, we still take care of them and we you know it it's just is what it is and uh, you want it to be better and you try and persuade people to lose weight try and persuade people to wear masks and, and not go to bars but you know, uh, you, you can only do so much. You can't say it is. It is what it is. That's what. That's what he says. <laughs> that's what. That's oh, what Charles. It is, oh, it sorry. Is, I mean, I actually. I actually. It is. I don't. It is. It is. It is. It is what it is. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. No, no, I'm not a trumper. No, no, oh my god. Secret. Secret. You're. You're betraying yourself. No. Um. I guess I would say. Um. I agree with you. And you know, one of the things as a clinician that you know, many years ago, I went to some some lecture, and this person, the speaker, was talking about how. You know, you, if you have a patient with extended stage small cell lung cancer, you should encourage them to quit smoking and, and, that, and that sort of thing. And then I was like, have you, I was like, I mean, I don't know how to put this to you politely, but, um, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for someone in, those, in that situation. And, and I think it is quite likely, possible, maybe probable, that uh, prior smoking contributed to the extended stage small cell lung cancer. I also recognize the median survival is on the order of four, six months. Back then, at least maybe it was closer to four months. And if somebody doesn't want to quit smoking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to say anything because they have four months to live. And if they quit smoking, I suspect they would also have four months to live. So I suspect that getting them to quit smoking, I see, has no value at all in such a situation. And this person said, oh, no, there's retrospective data that says people who quit smoking in that situation do better. And I was like, yeah, that's obviously flawed, deeply flawed retrospective data by the types of people who would quit in such a situation and the types who would continue and press on. And so I think I would put no stock at all whatsoever in that data. Um, and, 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 and this person didn't understand, but this person wasn't a clinician. They don't spend time with people. And I thought to myself, this person is a smart person with a grant funding, works at a premier institution, and does not understand that this is not something that a good doctor would even do. Um, to take somebody who's dying and get them to quit smoking, I, I, in fact, I mean, I, I don't want to be too provocative, but I mean, one could argue that they can enjoy every cigarette in what little life they enjoy whatever they want in that little life that's not provocative that's, that's provocative. just true wisdom true I mean, common I sense do, common sense yeah. i mean i do i do that all the time i mean i can't tell you one of my most common lines is when you know people come to me in their mid-80s or whatever and they don't want to take they don't want to take a statin or whatever their blood pressure med i'm like you know i'm like the point of preventive medicines is to get to 85. Yes. Once exactly. you're at 85, yes, right. if you're a male, you're like, what, seven years to the good, you know, have fun. I mean, don't do stupid stuff, but I don't know. To me, to me, um, uh, common sense would, would go a long way. Um, and the common sense with COVID in America is that, you know, we, we have to do the public health that we're going to that's going to work for America, not for the, and, and not the public health that's going to work for Germany or Canada or wherever.
I um I wish we had 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 sort of this conversation back in like March, you know. Now I I don't know where we are. I mean, I think we're in a situation where there's still going to be those public health zealots on Twitter, the Twitter public health zealots who don't have boots on the ground public health experience, but have theoretical experience with Excel spreadsheets. And they're going to say that you ought to do X, Y, and Z in a world disconnected from real people where real people don't want to do those things. Um, as you say, without sort of a finger on the pulse of what the average person wants to do. Um, I think we're going to have a lame duck session that doesn't want to do anything. Um, and I think it's going to be a, just, just a strange situation. Well, yeah. well I, I guess Vinay would say that these, I mean, it's just to me another irony of the thing is that People who speak about inequities and despair, you know, uh, differences and outcomes. I mean, some of these, some some voices are actually the loudest for lockdowns or or restrictions. But the the restrictions actually enhance these um, inequities. These, these yeah, inequities. And and so it's it's like it's not right thinking. It's 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 wrong thinking. And um, so I just. You know, I'm I'm struck by the irony of it. Yeah, I guess I guess I'm struck uh, I'm struck by by that as well. And um, you know, I, I put myself in the progressive camp, and and why do I put myself in that camp? Even though I uh, increasingly feel frustrated by uh, I think progressive messaging that's self defeating, but I put myself in that camp because I believe that um, one can enact a set of governmental policies that do improve outcomes for everybody, not just the wealthy amongst us, but improves outcomes for poor people, for minorities, for people who have historically been discriminated against. I think we can have that as a government. And I view progressivism as sort of the idea that um, governments should be free to experiment to improve these, these aims. And that we ought not tie our hands together and say, oh, well, we could never send a check to people and give them money. Well, if that works, well, that works, you know, if that works, that works. Um, where I, I, I disagree with progressivism, as it is defined in this modern age, is I disagree with the idea that you get mileage out of shaming people and making people feel bad who are already on your side. I think that you gain mileage when you bring more people into your tent so you have more political clout. Um, so that's one of the points of disagreement I have. I, I, I get frustrated with people who prioritize um, plans over empiricism. So if your plan is Medicare for all, and it turns out that, you know, that works well in Sweden, but doesn't work so well here. If your plan is lift up all the drawbridges, and that works well in New Zealand and Ireland, uh, but that doesn't work so well here, I get very frustrated because progressivism to me means pragmatism. It means trying things. And if they don't work, you have to abandon it and not live in your fairy tale world. And New Zealand, everyone is celebrating, but you know, you and I are, are wise in one sense where we point out this is mile marker seven in a marathon. It's not done all yet. And New Zealand may be looking good now, but what are they going to do with a vaccine? The vaccine comes, let's say the vaccine comes out with a point estimate of efficacy of 40%. That ain't 100%. And you can't keep those drawbridges up forever unless you want to remain an island nation that has no tourism and starves itself on that island. You're going to have to lower those drawbridges. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen to Sweden in the future? It's easy to judge them. 
Um, uh, but but it's it's still in the middle of the race, and I would be hesitant to do so. I think they have shown a prioritization for progressive values, the irony being they are a progressive nation. They believe that the children's education and their upward mobility is of tantamount importance in a society, um, and that we ought not compromise that, even if it means incurring high, higher casualties in the short term. That's a progressive choice um, that progressives have forgotten, and they want to demonize. And so I guess I think demonization... Um, making, you know, taking people who are centrist and and wanting to build a wall between you and the center, that's not progressivism. That's self-defeating. You're never going to get a coalition. Um, And I think progressivism really is the idea that government intervention can do good with the right policy. Um, and, and, And that's why I put myself firmly in that camp, because everything I do is about how we can do better drug discovery and drug development policy. Right. I mean, you were smart to have Margaret McCartney on because... I mean, I think one of the things that we could do and should do and, and, and should advocate for is more, uh, is to collecting data and, and looking at these natural experiments and these cluster randomized trials and learn from it and learn from it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, randomized control trials aren't, aren't everything, but I mean, we could really use some, you know, some experimentation in the space, especially with schools, uh, you know, different kinds of social distancing policies. I mean, why not? Yeah, it would have gone a long way. But, um, and that's another, I think, difference because um, these policies took on sort of an identity of their own. They came to define people who were part of us versus them. And so suddenly, if you were opposed to the policy, you were them. And if you were for testing the policy... You were them too. You weren't us. And so us are the people, we're the ones who want to do all the things, whether they work or not, you know, uh, who knows? That's for future pandemics, 20, 2320. They'll figure that out then. We're going to figure out this century. We'll figure it out in the future century. Um, I think when they look back in 2310 on um, this, this pandemic, they will, they will put us much closer to the people who dealt with the bubonic plague than they will put us in the Society of Scientists. Indeed. Indeed. Last topic, last question for you. This is something that I tweeted about recently. I wanted to pick your brain on it. Um, you know, there are a number of uh, advocates in the in the COVID space who has who have pointed out that um, we should judge COVID expertise by the number of peer review publications someone has. And when I saw that claim, I thought, oh my god, this is. I thought, oh boy, here we go again. The number of peer review publications. The other thing I hear is that Scott Atlas is no good because he's, um, what is he? He's a radiologist. There's that writer for The Atlantic. I forget her name. Um, she's a computer scientist and she had written about masks a little bit ahead of the curve. Um, she writes uh, some things. Um, uh, 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 nobody ever says to her that she's not a doctor. They just say that she's a prophet. She is somebody who really understands uncertainty. But Scott Atlas, he's a moron because he's a radiologist. Um, this is a very dumb way to look at the world. Um, you're only saying that because you don't like what he says. You like what she says, so you're praising her. It's not about the credential. You need to explain what you don't like about their position. Similarly, if we live in an environment where 90% of academics believe we ought to have lockdowns and closed schools and all these things, um, and somebody says we ought not to do those, those have serious downsides that may out- exceed benefits. Um, if you say, why have you not published a peer-reviewed paper? It's really like sitting on someone's chest and asking why they're not standing up. 
The reason they're not publishing the peer-reviewed paper is it's got to go through people like you who don't agree with it. It's very difficult to publish a minority view peer-reviewed paper in a tight time frame because this has only been going on a few months. With enough years, yeah, it'll squeak through eventually. And as somebody who's written blogs that are outside of the traditional publication and as somebody who's published in the traditional publication, I wonder if you might talk about, you know, strengths, weaknesses, peer review. Is it necessary? Is it good? Just because you have it doesn't mean it's true? What do you think? Yeah, I mean... First of all, I think that context, context expertise is worthwhile. For, for sure, context expertise is important. But like let's say you're writing a paper about cancer. Clearly, context expertise is important. Same with AFib, you know, anticoagulation, fine. You need that. But you know, as we wrote in a medical conservative paper, context expertise is not, is not everything. You need, you need uh, external external you know, external eyes on something. And and take take this whole, uh, you know, pandemic. Who really, who one person has contact expertise on a virus? So you have virologists, they know about the virus. You have infectious disease doctors, they know about that. You have ICU docs, ER docs surely have some context expertise. Epidemiologists, for sure. Uh, ec- economists, yes. But if you think about the virus and the any interventions there's no real one expert on this that's number one so i think it's total malarkey to think that you have to have a lot of peer-reviewed papers to have a a worthwhile opinion i mean it's complete malarkey because of the pandemic second um you know uh uh, we i have to be careful what i say that's how i feel (laughs) we have a I'm writing with a group of authors some two two papers on uh, COVID. Uh, let's say meta research. We're we're writing about meta research, and they're pretty. I mean, I'm biased. I'm, they're they're pretty well done papers, and they're not a flattering. They, the 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 findings are not flattering to the adjudication of COVID science, and we are having a bear of a time getting it published. Mm. And so if you have and this is it shouldn't be like this it shouldn't be that science ought to be judged not by its narrative but mm-hmm. it just is, is very very difficult and i really I, there's no perfect peer review but this insular peer review is and i'm not the only one to say this i mean this is this has been out there it's a real problem a it's real a problem. problem yeah i mean i would say uh i think i just I just got my like 270th peer review paper accepted and, and, uh, it's been, and I've been doing it for what, 11 years or something like that. Um, and, and I can promise you that, um, the ideas that have the hardest uphill battle are not because the methods are any weaker than the other ones. It's because the ideas are the most against the grain of what vested interests think. And so if you want to publish a paper saying that the standards for publishing COVID articles are in the toilet, which is my guess what your paper found, I think I saw you because you tweeted a preprint about it, um, yeah. that they're publishing them fast and, and what right. their, their standard is, is poor. Um, that's one of them. Well, that's one of the, oh, I see. Okay. And uh, it's going to face an uphill battle because the people who are the gatekeeper of the message are the victim of the criticism of the message and so they're not going to want to be you know putting that out there rapidly well, what do you think what do you think would have happened to that mass study say if it was one of those one out of 20 studies that found a positive p-value and there was actually a difference in saturations wearing a mask uh, and it might just have been spurious and, and they tried to publish that 
Do you think that had any chance of getting published? That, that- I, I think it's, 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 the problem is even worse than that. That as they were doing the study, if they found a significant reduction in SpO2 from wearing the mask, they will repeat the measurements until they do not find it. <laughs> they, uh, exa- exactly right. It's a bias susceptible endpoint. If, if I'm running, if I'm, if this is how they run this, let's let tell how they run this study. This is the run the study. They're like, oh my God, all these people who are wrong are saying this lowers O2. That's their starting point. We need to show these imbeciles that they are wrong. We're going to take people, measure the O2, put the mask on, measure the O2 again, and see what it is. That's the goal of the study. So they start, they measure the O2, 96%. They measure it again, 94.2. Oh, that's lower. Let's give it a second. Let's check it again in a minute. It must be loose. They fix it, 96.2, correct. And they just do that. (laughs) I mean, literally, it's not even science. They know what they want to find. They want to show these people are idiots. And so they're just going to find it. And it's the exact same thing that Daryl pointed out with, um, with, with simplicity with renal artery denervation. They had the renal artery denervation. They put the cycle the cuff. It's 160 over 90. And, uh, well, you know, they had just had it. They can't be 160 over 90. Let's cycle it again. Um, it's, 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 it's exactly the same thing, except the only difference is this time they really, really, really know what they want to find. And so it doesn't even, pr- it doesn't prove anything. And I don't know. And, and where, and where does it stop? We're going to do ABGs on people. We're going to, you know, and, and, and what delusion, who, is there a delusion so crazy that we can say like, oh God, we can't test that. You know, if somebody believes that, you know, if they, I don't know. I, I mean, if, if people think that it, it, it changes your pet imaging, it has go masks of increased glucose uptake in your ears. Should I have to do a hundred person petsy, you know, the pet imaging study to prove that this is crazy. We can't, we cannot, we can't play this game. We got real stuff to do. I think this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, this is why critical appraisal is so important. A quick, a quick story. When uh, many, many years ago, I, I was doing a poster on AFib ablation um, and and I, I had this theory that women did worse with afib ablation, and yes. I was looking at our series, and it turned out that it turned out in my in our data set it didn't show it didn't show that it wasn't statistically significant. Mm-hmm. And I had hired this 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 statistician. This, he was about 19 years old, and he was a sophomore statistician <laughs> dude. Uh-huh. And he was like the littlest, humblest guy. And I said, "Okay, Sean, I know what we're going to do. We'll just look at women over 65. <laughs> then then." And I said, let's do it that way. And yeah. he looked at me with this blank face. And I said, what's the matter, Sean? Speak up. And he goes, you, you really can't do that. And I said, wait, I'm a cardiologist. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, let's do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I called my friend who's an academic. And he said, no, John. He goes, Sean is right. You can't do that. Yeah. But I mean, this is this is like routine stuff that we see yeah. every week. With this, just looking for positive values. And so we need to be critical appraisal. I mean, we just need to keep doing it. Exactly right. Well, John Mandrill, it's a pleasure to chat with you. The battery on my laptop is 4%, so I better wrap this up. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I agree with you that, that podcast is the only antidote to, the, to Twitter. Um, and, and I hope people who even disagree with us um, find the discussion illuminating. Because at the end of the day, I think we are all more on the same side of the issue than folks recognize one of the concerns, I mean, I think one of the problems we have with illiberalism is that we think it hurts the cause. Folks like you and I who want to see 
substantive addressment of socioeconomic disparities who want more green space, more bike lanes, more better education, better nutrition for kids, for poor kids who want more upward mobility, who want healthcare for everybody that's affordable. Folks like us who want those things, we feel like the, the, the far extreme views in our own group are making it harder for us to achieve our goals in our lifetime. And that's why we're critical of it. And that's why it bothers us. And I think that that's why, you know, we talked about it on this podcast the way we did. Well, I co completely agree. I'm honored that you had me on and I really want to compliment you. I think the plenary session is, is one of the best medical podcasts. I listen to it every week and I, I, I just applaud everything that you do and you, and you should know that you should just keep doing it. And it's, it's just fantastic. So thank you. Thanks so much, Dr. Mandrella. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.